does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Off and running here on a, what is today, Jimmy? Hump Day Wednesday? It is Hump Day Wednesday. Hump Day Wednesday on the Fan Jake Query along with Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison here as well. We got a good show lined up, actually. Um, and, and yesterday, I felt good about it because I was in this great mood because we, we walked out of here yesterday and I just felt good as Santa Jake, right? Yeah, it's a great Help, feeling. Helping deliver Christmas miracles to sports fans across central Indiana. Haven't you just taken the list, though? You still got to check it twice and figure out which ones are going to pass. Like, there's, there's Who's no, naughty and who's nice? But no delivering just yet, right? Just acceptance of the requests. That's correct. I have not actually... Well, I got to you know load everything up. Correct. It's not Christmas it's yet. It's not supposed to be foggy, right? Now, here's the question. if They still use Rudolph even if it's not foggy, right? Because yeah. it's still nighttime. Correct. Okay. You don't take the lights off your car just because it's clear skies right yeah, you still need them just in case that's a good point although the fog lights and the headlights are two totally different right, animals right two totally different things right you think you think rudolph has two settings you hit the high beams or you <laughs> probably <laughs> multiple options right. there for him he might that's a good question actually <laughs> that's a really good question um we've got a lot to talk about including indiana last night jimmy <laughs> listen um now you're laughing now why are you laughing because <laughs> they got the win at the end of the day Right, and you talk about the ramifications of a loss to Moorhead State on your home floor with an unknown ceiling for what the Hoosiers can be this year. And they were talking about it on the telecast last night. Bruce Weber highlighted it. We're going to talk to him top of the two o'clock hour. But that's a tough loss to have. And they didn't they didn't lose. To clarify, they won. But that would have been a tough loss to have on your resume come Selection Sunday. And I'm not going to sit here and and fully be disgruntled or upset about a win, but the fact that it took, what, a 20-6 to run over the final nine minutes to get it done, you're walking a very, very tight rope. Here's what concerns me for Indiana. Sure. Also, the fact they couldn't get up for that game bothered me, that it took... I'll admittedly, you know, I I talked to people yesterday after the game, so this is kind of a a scouting from, from various areas, but here's what Indiana did against Kansas. Okay. Against so Indiana's offense typically is that they have a guard or a wing player that comes in and basically Khalil, Khalil Weir is their focal point of their offense, right? Or Malik Renew, one of those right. two. So they go into one of them and then they have somebody flash in from the wing and they do either, you know, essentially a handoff or or a dish off. And if the defender comes over and, and helps. You dish back to Khalil Ware or Malik Renew, easy basket. If the defender says, okay, I'm not going to help. I, I'm going to I'm gonna stay with my man. Then that is allowing for whoever the flasher is to get an easy basket. This is this was how they took advantage with Galloway against Kansas. All the time you saw Galloway with those type of cuts. So Kansas yeah. basically said, we're, we're, we're going to let your guards have that. We 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 feel that it is in our better interest to stay with Khalil Ware or Renew and let your guards have their shots, okay? Well, because that worked against Kansas, because Kansas just surrendered that and let Galloway get his 28, 
because that worked against Kansas, they they did the same thing last night against Moorhead State. They ran a, basically the exact same stuff. And Moorhead State said, you know what? We're not going to let that happen. We'll double over and, and we'll, we'll, we'll cut that off in the lane. And then if need be, we will corner or trap the big. If it goes back to that, we have the length and the athleticism to go over and try to play both sides of it. And what worries me for Indiana is they just kind of stuck with it. They didn't seem to have – George Hill once told me that for the Pacers, and I found this fascinating, that a big problem that, – that Pacers team that had George Hill and David West and Lance Stevenson and Paul George, and I think a lot of what happened with that team and where things broke down was each play that the Pacers would have. They'd call out a play. Triangle gold. Everybody on the floor knows that triangle gold has an automatic alternate play. Okay? And if Triangle Gold, the first entry pass is supposed to go to David West. If it goes to anyone but David West, that means that the alternate play becomes immediately active. So instead of Triangle Gold, you're going to Blue Circle. So it goes into David West, and everybody's like, okay, now we're running Blue Circle because Triangle Gold they took away, and they didn't. he didn't go to David West, so we're running Blue Circle. And Lance Stevenson was the one that would shy away from that, and, and it just created all kinds of havoc over the course of time when they, they were playing in that. Seems unlikely. Okay? For Indiana last night, the thing that was frustrating was they never seemingly went away from – they never went to an alternate play. They stayed with, no, this is what we're going to do and we're going to stick with it. And they didn't make the, the necessary adjustments. Now, in the end, it obviously paid off for them because they had the big run at the end and they ended up winning the game. They played perfect at the end. They played perfect. Which, at which the is end. the which is the margin for error that at times feels present with this team. They shot eighteen percent from beyond the arc. Mike Woodson acknowledged it post game that they got enough stops to win, and that that's really all that matters. You were able to erase what was a nightmarish night from start to about nine minutes left to go in the game, and now it's a learning session instead of a learning session after a loss. The bigger issue for me, to your point, Jake, about whether it was lack of adjustments or whether it was sticking with something that they looked flat. Assembly Hall felt flat last night and a large part of it was whichever five were on the floor for a half and change of that ball game. Now now that said, there is still areas in growth for them to learn and improve from this, but we already know what they are as a three-point shooting team. And we know that if you're not going to either take a high volume of threes or make a high volume of threes, you have to play near perfect basketball everywhere else that's hard to sustain for 48 minutes, but they were able to get nine and a half of it, which it was a 20 to four run, by the way, to close that game. So the defense did get better, but it's like it shouldn't take Kansas coming into Assembly Hall to get 40 right. minutes of clean basketball. Now, the other big story that happened yesterday before the Indiana game, and Nick Cross is going to join us from the Colts here in just a couple of minutes, but um, the Colts yesterday finding out they're going to be down the home stretch without two guys, Jimmy. Yeah, Isaiah McKenzie and Tony Brown, three games for conduct detrimental to the team. That was not imposed by the NFL. That was done by the Colts, and that will sideline both players to the end of the regular season. Now, here's my question. There are two ways to look at this, okay? And I'll admit, yesterday I was Santa Jake, today I'll be the Grinch, okay? I know that the narrative is going to be, see, this is what's fabulous about the Colts. They hold players accountable. They hold players accountable. If you're not living up to expectation, Shaq Leonard, they'll release you. This sends a message through the locker room, and it shows, you know, it's all about culture. It's about being a leader of men. 
This is, I, I love this franchise because they bring in character guys. Then the other side of it is this, Jimmy. How many players have we seen so far this year for the Colts that have had to miss games for something other than health reasons? Well, this is now four. Five. Five? Who so am the, I missing? Uh, you've got Chris Lamonts. That's who I'm missing. Al-Qadi Muhammad, Grover yep. Stewart, yep. and the two from yesterday. Okay. All right, there we go. And then they just signed somebody that still owes the league, if he's on the active roster, a, a four-game suspension. Jared Valdir. So my question is this. Two ways to look at it. One is... I love that this is a franchise that holds people accountable. The other is, why is it a franchise, if it touts itself as a franchise where character matters, why are they bringing in characters where this becomes an issue for the second time in three years and towards the end of the year? Where when the games are the most critical, where you everybody's not fully in. How, how has that happened? I Again, I get it. I mean, over the course of, a, of you know, 52 players and then, you know, 60 plus with all things, you know, I get it. But I also think that there is mixed messaging between the reality and the branding. On the one hand, I want to say, well, I mean, Isaiah McKenzie, Tony Brown, they've been primarily backups or special teamers this year. But at the same time, this isn't happening everywhere else around the league. McKenzie's a pretty important special teams player, though. Correct. Again, I'm not trying to... And Brown plays a position where they need all the depth they can get. they, They have certainly been useful bodies, useful players at times over the course of the season, but going in, you're looking at them not necessarily as star players. All that said, Jake, I mean, you're right. It points to a larger issue of you're not seeing these type of suspensions stack up around the league. Right. It's happening Well, and, and to be fair, though, we're also not paying as specific esoteric sure, attention to the daily happenings of the Denver Broncos. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, joining us now on the guest line, a guy that at his first career interception against the Pittsburgh Steelers, he was a third-round pick in the 2022 NFL Draft. Nick Cross, the safety for the Colts, joins us. Nick, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, you know what? I can't complain, man. I mean, here's the thing. I, and I used to be a guy, Nick, that, that that would look at things like, you know, the pessimistic side of things, right? But it's Christmas week, right? It's Christmas week. We're heading down the home. For you, personally, you got to be thinking to yourself, okay, it's Christmas week, but here you are down the home stretch, and you guys have – the the division within sight now. You've put yourself in that position. Take me through just kind of the overall mindset or energy that comes with that. No, it's definitely exciting. Um, you know, it's definitely exciting to know that, you know, you're in control of your own destiny. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you just take it one day at a time, one week at a time, and just, you know, you know what's ahead of us. But at the end of the day, you just got to make sure you take one step and put one foot in front of the other and everything will take care of itself. It has been, let's go back to this, and I want to I want to kind of tag team it with how it might be helping the mindset from a team standpoint right now. But for you, Nick Cross, when you were drafted to the Colts, I remember we had your college coach on, and the discussion was, you know, you were an incredible athlete, that you were still probably going to have to kind of learn and feel your way through the position at the NFL level, but you had the athleticism to be instinctive at your position and you've kind of had to wait your time, truth be told, right, for the reps to come your way and then make the most of them. How difficult was that process to learn and have to rely on that patience while at the same time knowing that you had to be ready? Uh, it was just, you know, it can be difficult at times. You know, you know the, the skill set that you have. And you know that, you know, everybody wants what they want now. And, you know, it's definitely a good thing. You know, I always say that everybody's plan is different. You know, God has a different plan for everybody. And at the end of the day, his was to just teach me patience throughout the whole process, you know, teach me consistency, teach me just to continue to put in the work, 
even if the results weren't showing automatically or they weren't showing when I wanted them to. So it's just, you know, <clears throat> to teach, you know, just consistency, patience. And, you know, I feel like I grew a lot in those areas over this past year. Um, and it's definitely, you know, form me into a better player, a better man, and just overall a better person. Cold safety, Nick Cross, nice enough to take some time with us. Nick, how has Gus Bradley been influential in your development slash through through all the, the ups and downs and the growth and the fight that you've had to go through to be able to be in this position? Uh, he's been very, <clears throat> very influential. Um, you know, someone who will always talk to me, you know, always very encouraging, you know, always trying to help me improve, you know, in a place that I can improve, just, you know, whether it's a little story here, a little story there, or, you know, just an encouraging word here, an encouraging word there. Or, you know, sometimes he just, you know, call me into his office and we'll sit down and talk about, you know, life and, you know, not even really football. Um, but he's been someone who's always been there. Him, you know, Coach Milo, Coach Mike Mitch, you know, are guys who always, you know, <clears throat> no matter what's been going on, just say, you know, keep grinding, keep working, you know, your time's going to come. Just make sure you're prepared when it comes. Is there a singular moment you can point to besides the interception where things really started to click for you or where you felt like maybe you turned a corner this year? I'll probably go back to <clears throat> go back to training camp. Um, just, you know, being out there, taking all the reps, you know, it's strong, get free at nickel. Um, and just, you know, having to go out there and perform at a high level every day. I'm just trying to be the most consistent out there. And, you know, I definitely felt my game take, you know, a, a certain jump. Just being out there and just having to be able to communicate at a high level to all the positions. And, you know, I talked to Gus at the end of training camp. He was like, look, you know, you're night and day from where you were last year. And that's kind of where, you know, I felt that, okay, like, you know, I can do this. I can do this at a high level. And now it's just continuing to put in the work and to put in the time to be able to make sure I'm prepared when the time comes. Nick, there are a lot of guys on the roster. Nick Cross of the Colts joins us. There are a lot of guys on the roster that have kind of gone through a process similar to yourself where, you know, they kind of had to wait till their number was called. Does that benefit this installment of the Colts this year in the fact of now you're at a point where you can't look too far ahead and you've got to go one week at a time. It's more critical now probably than ever with this last stretch. Does it benefit you to have a locker room full of guys that have had to take things in their career one week at a time? Uh, I think it definitely does. I think it's, you know, it's part of the identity of the team. Just, you know, a team that's, you know, resilient, a team that fights through adversity. I'm a team that's not going to let, you know, one thing or another stop them from getting to where we need to get to. Um, <clears throat> You know, at the end of the day, you know, our team has been formed through adversity and it's one of those things that either makes you or breaks you and it, you know, it definitely reveals who you are. And I feel like throughout the year it's revealed that, you know, we're a tough team, you know, a competitive team. And <clears throat> at the end of the day, we don't rest until we get the result we need. So it's definitely good to be able to have that at this point in the season. How big a detriment or distraction is it to have personnel issues taking place away from the field that takes guys away? Uh, we try not to focus on that stuff. Um, <clears throat> just focus on the the task at hand, which is going out there every day. You know, working hard, studying in meetings, watching the film, going on the practice field, taking care of my body, and ultimately just going out there and trying to win on Sundays. You know, you went to one of the you went to Dematha High School, right? Yes, sir. Which is probably uh, let's be honest, Nick Cross. If you're talking about high school athletics in the United States, it's got to be like top five. I mean, the number of players and, you know, David Aldridge, who we just had on the show, went there. Jarab Mustaf went there. I mean, it's it's endless, like the number of players that have come through that school. Victor Oladipo went through there for that matter. Um, was it a benefit to you 
to to come through a high school program where you know a lot of the guys in the NFL have been the guy their entire high school and college career, and they're the greatest athlete in the history of their high school. With all due respect, you're one of many, many great athletes that came through your high school. How much did that instill in you kind of the initiative or the underdog nature that has carried you to this point? Uh, it definitely was good for me to go somewhere like that. Um, you know, you see all the great players. <clears throat> Excuse me. You see all the great players who go ahead of you, you know, the Josh Wilsons, the the Victor Oladipo, the Mark Hill, the Chase, you know, all those guys who've gone before you. And, you know, it's just motivation to go out there and, you know, do it for yourself as well as the guys who come before you. You know, they sacrificed. They paved the way so that we can have the opportunities we have. So it's definitely fun to be able to see them, you know, when they come to the building, when they came back to the school. And it just gave that added motivation to be like, okay, you know, they were in my shoes not too long ago. So what's the difference between them making it and me being able to make it? So it just, you know, was something that pushed me every day in order to be able to just be the best I can be. Who paves the way for you in the Colts locker room? Who's the guy that so long as they are there and – and by the way, are you feeling okay? You don't have like a – you're not, you're not going to be on the injury list with a cough and cold, are oh, you? No, 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 no. One of my teammates made me laugh. <laughs> and okay, I, I want to make sure. No, <laughs> who, who's the guy in the locker room that, that just kind of gives you – we all have this within the workplace where like when they're there, you just feel like everything's going to be okay. Who's that guiding force for you? Um, I would probably say, you know, I'll probably go back to last year. You know, he was here last year, um, Stephon Gilmore, you know, one of the first guys that took me in. And, you know, took me under his wing, <clears throat> someone I still talk to to this day. And then you know, on top of that, I'll probably say, you know, DeForest Buckner, Taquan, you know, the group of the D linemen who I always hang around. Um, they're definitely there all the time, you know, just, you know, showing their consistency in practice and the way they prepare and everything. And, you know, just great guys to be around, guys that, you know, I hang out with every day on the field, off the field, in the locker room, out the locker room. So, <clears throat> They're definitely there, you know, always encouraging, always, you know, uplifting and, you know, always trying to challenge me to be the best I can be every day. Cold safety Nick Cross is our guest. Nick, for those that say, well, the defense, the team as a whole is only playing this great because of the schedule and the teams they're playing against. What do you say to them to show that, no, when the playoffs start, we're, we're going to be this same team. It doesn't matter who's on the schedule. Um, I feel like, you know, we just got to show in the work we put in. Um, you know, we try to go one and oh every week want to know every day just you know go out there and execute and 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 destroy everything in our path you know practice meetings walk through just go out there dominate those things and it'll all translate to Sunday so you know I'm not too worried about you know what the naysayers say and everything you know we just go out there every week is the same process you know win lose or draw no matter who the opponent is and we just go out there and try to compete at a high level and ultimately win the football game. Nick, lastly, Atlanta, you know, I, I think we now know that, that it's probably going to be Taylor Henneke that is quarterbacking for them. Desmond Ritter obviously has taken a lot of their snaps. That's kind of gone back and forth. How difficult is it to game plan for a team when you're not 100% certain who the quarterback's going to be? Um, it, can, it can provide its, its, its difficulties, but at the end of the day, you know, we played Taylor last year when he was with the Commanders. Um <clears throat> And, you know, we have a lot of film on Desmond. So it's just, you know, like I said, you know, we go out there, you know, for whoever's out there, we prepare, we watch the film. You know, we, we are in tune with our assignments and what the defensive coaches have planned for us for this game. And just got to go out there and execute at a high level. Did you get to – are you like Giannis? Did you get to keep the football from your first interception? Did you make sure that – did you let go in the visiting locker room, make sure you got it for the mantle? 
Oh, no, yeah, the, the, the football is sitting in my house right now. So. Hey, there we go. That's yeah. what I like to hear. All right. Well, hey, Nick, we appreciate it. Best of luck, uh, obviously, against the Atlanta Falcons and down the home stretch here as you guys try to lock in a postseason berth and potentially an AFC South title. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. All right, Nick Cross, again, from the Indianapolis Colts. I, you know, the, the, the one area of concern in that for me would be simply, Jimmy, the fact that if Stephon Gilmore is the guy that it gives him like a comfort feeling being in the locker room. Problem is he's not there anymore, right? Yeah. Um, I get what he's saying. It's a good I mean, thing they're cell phones, Jake. What's that? It's a good thing they're cell phones. Yeah, but you know what? When you're out on the field, it's awfully hard to make a phone call. That's right? true. You got Kenny Moore, though. I mean, well, exactly, which is not the answer he gave. Right? I know. That's my point. So, you know, that honestly, I mean, I think that, and I get what he's saying. I mean, Stephon Gilmore offered him a, a leadership, sure. and that's part of why Stephon Gilmore probably – was here. It speaks volumes to the work that Nick's put in this year, though, if that was such a big, I don't want to say cushion for him necessarily, but Gilmore's, like you mentioned, been gone, and yet he's still been able to fight through the adversity. And I think be what here. we see with Cross is this, and, and I think that you see this with, you know, I'm trying to think of other players. To be honest with you, it's almost like the reverse psychology with Shaq Leonard. And by that, I mean Nick Cross is a guy that when he was drafted in, the Colts made no bones about the fact, nor did I think Nick Cross was aware of the fact that he was drafted for his raw athleticism. Um, TJ Green is another guy that, that falls into this exact same category at the safety position, played corner in college, did Green, and because he could collapse you know, his, his, his speed to get to a spot on instinct was such that they took the gamble that it would be able to pay off and that instinctively he would learn the safety position. It never panned out for him here, and, and that's why he didn't make it to, I don't think, a second contract. Now, with Nick Cross... He is a guy that the Colts openly admitted they might have drafted a little too early. And by that, I mean maybe they could have gotten him in like five. I think they traded up to get to him. But they loved his athleticism to be able to instinctively get to where the football is, even though the position was not natural just yet. And But, but what I mean by that when I say instinctively, I mean when when they play – in other words, he if the football is going to his right – he has the athleticism to wait till the ball's going that way and then instinctively react to where the ball's going, sure. whereas other players have a natural football instinct to know the football's going to the right before it even goes there. And I think he's had to learn through because he was so reliant on his athleticism for so long. And, and now he's learned the the actual game, the, the, the viewing and the unfolding of the play to be able to put it together for himself because before that he didn't have to necessarily learn those things. The opposite happened with Shaq Leonard because Shaq Leonard is a guy that his speed was so good that he didn't necessarily have to learn that area. And and then once his athleticism went away to where he had to rely on, on fundamental and on X's and O's, not that Shaq Leonard was totally void of that ability to do that. I'm not saying that. But he had never had to do it before because he was so much faster than everybody else. He could re, he could be reactionary. So if you are a reactionary player, then what Nick Cross has done, I think, is he was drafted because in college he was a reactionary player. But before he really went out there to rely on his reactionary skills, he learned preemptive skills. And now you're starting to see that all come together for him, which is why he is getting on the field more. So, right. you know, and and – it is a real positive sign for them if he can continue in that right trajectory because of the fact that that is a position. Whenever you're talking about the defensive backfield, you're talking about consistent rotation of player. 
I mean, there's always going to be, I've always said a thousand times, you've heard me say it, offensive line and defensive back, cell phone chargers and sunglasses. You can never have too many. You can never have too many because as soon as you have one, you're like, man, this thing's great. It either all of a sudden just one day (laughs) it loses its power or you forget where it is and you turn around and it's broken, right? Yeah. And so to have that depth at that position is important. Now, in terms of the situation with Isaiah McKenzie and Tony Brown, kind of a different scenario. And we'll talk about exactly that and what's going on with the Colts in that regard on the other side, Kurt Signetti, 1 o'clock. Bruce Weber, 2 o'clock on a Wednesday here. Aquarian Company, 93.5-1075, The Fan. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. So again, Jimmy Cook, and thank you to Nick Cross for his time. I, I'm i a little concerned, by the way, that he was... Has he been hanging out with you guys? Him and Eddie, I think, got lunch the other day. Okay, stop. How's the coffin cold, Eddie? I feel perfectly fine. Monday was the worst. Okay. Jimmy, yours? Stuffy and a little bit of a sore throat. Uh-oh. Staying over here, man. See, you know, I never had the sore I'm throat. Just, like I said to you guys. You're right. Symptoms can't evolve. They'll if, vary from person to person. And you're just and coming you're off an airplane overseas. If I get sick for Christmas time, there's going to be hell to okay, pay for you guys. I know nobody's a doctor, right, in this room. But what is the grace period in terms of, okay, you're back. It's definitely not from the trip. That's a good question. Usually takes four days. Four days. Yeah, I was about to say usually it takes forty-eight to seventy-two hours to develop symptoms of. Monday would have been cut off, but I still like playing Eddie. So or blaming Eddie. But Monday, you were back. You were feeling sick. Sick, right? Correct. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, Tuesday. Okay. It was fine. Monday felt a Tuesday. Well, I'm moving a little bit further over here. Um, The Colts. I will admit. I was a cynic yesterday when I saw the suspension because I don't know which way to to go with it. I I don't know whether to. Th- I can tell you what I where I want to go with it. Okay, I, I know that it's probably my job and it's what people want to hear to come on here and say, "See, this is wonderful. I love the fact that Tony Brown and Isaiah McKenzie did something detrimental to the team." And whether it was the two of them were in tandem and they were like the, you know, the two rogue things that stayed out late and missed bed check, you know, I don't, but I know that the narrative that I should go with is this is an example of why I love this franchise and I love how it starts at the top with accountability and responsibility and sending messages. And that's fine. And I'm cool with that, except for this. I cannot, nor do I think anybody should, from December until May, talk about how the reason that I love this franchise is because they have an accountability and they bring in character matters and you have to be a horseshoe guy that's for the horseshoe. You can't say that from December to May if then 
between August and December, you're walking like a clown shoe wearing guy on landmines of wondering when the next roster spot all of a sudden is going to open up in the most critical point of the year because guys are being suspended. If you bring in character guys, then that shouldn't be an issue. You shouldn't have to to do in-season accountability if you're bringing in guys that are horseshoe guys that are bought in from the get-go. Period. So you can't preach both. But having that, all that being said, I do understand, quite frankly, I do understand the, the fact that when you have that many players, I mean, it, it's it's virtually impossible to constantly, you know, all the time be in control and babysitting, if you will, players all the time. These are adults. And secondly, Chris Ballard, in his defense, has been open about the fact that he is willing to take flyers at some in some areas if he feels that he has a locker room that is strong enough to put those guys on the right course. Obviously, in this case, he didn't feel that he has a locker room strong enough to put Isaiah McKenzie and Tony Brown on the right course, or if he does, they didn't do it in quick enough fashion because those two guys are now out during the most critical period of the year. And listen, it's a whole different talk show. It's a whole different retroactive conversation about the vaccines and and testing positive and all those. I get it. But in reality, the thing that cooked Carson Wentz's goose in this town was essentially when he said that he wanted to do what was best for he and his family, his right, absolutely, I get it about the vaccine. I I don't want to get into that area because it's a, thank goodness, a a conversation from another year. But, But by all account, it appeared as though of all people at the very top, Jim Irsay said, look, if you're going to do it this way and the league has agreed to and the Players Association has agreed to certain rules on what happens if you have chosen not to be vaccinated, that's totally fine. That is totally your choice. Totally fine. No problem with that. But there are different processes for people that are not versus people that are. And so as a result of that, when Carson Wentz did test positive towards the end of the year, even though they ended up changing the rule at the very end of the the time period, Carson Wentz was not able to be around the team because he had agreed to the fact that that would be the risk he was running. And that risk whether it was just or unjust, valid or invalid. I totally understand people's perspective on that. I respect it. But the reality is there was a rule in place that he, by his own free will, chose to run the risk of, and that ended up going against him. The ruling went against him, and that hurt him, and it hurt his football team in its most critical periods. Carson Wentz is absolutely a more important part of the Indianapolis Colts in the year that he was playing here than Isaiah McKenzie and Tony Brown are to this one. But the reality is that you are now in the most critical home stretch of your season with a division in sight, trying to close in on that. Isaiah McKenzie is an important special teams player and at a position especially, and I'm not saying that this is where, that he is the guy that would be making this difference up, but if Michael Pittman Jr. is not able to go, for example, which I don't think that's going to be the case, but we shall see. He does provide receiver depth. Tony Brown plays a position that has been a turnstile for the Colts that you always need. And he he has not been great when he played. No, he's been that turnstile at times, Correct. right? He was the turnstile, yes. But he that's the area where 
he he provides at least a body and he you know my point being this down the home stretch when it is most important to have everybody to a man totally honed in yes give Colts credit that they went ahead and ridded themselves of two viruses that were running through the, the locker room their words not mine because they said they had conduct that was detrimental to the team so they got rid of them Oh, Kudos to that, right? Got rid of him for three games, right? We'll see what happens for the rest if they of the season, the playoffs. essentially, right? Well, I mean, well, McKenzie's on a one-year deal, so right. I, I understand okay. that, but they didn't what, say the whole year. Like, if they make the playoffs, are they done or are they bringing him back? Like for the regular season, they're done. Correct. I mean, yeah, it's not even point. like they're guys that are contributing weekly. I mean, McKenzie gets like ten snaps a game, I'm and Tony not, Brown just it doesn't matter. Teams. It doesn't right. matter. I'm not disagreeing with their value. I'm saying like. It's hard for me to go to the leap and say yes, they rid themselves of it. When the bottom I want line to see is this: happens. there's three games left in the regular season, and you're dealing with the fact that two guys that are in your locker room, in your rooms all the time, for whatever reason, had conduct that was detrimental to the team enough that you wanted to send them out to pasture for the remainder of the season. That is a real negative with three games to go. There's no positive you can put on it, and it it speaks to an area where yes. One half of you can say kudos to them for running a culture that held them accountable. The other is, why would they have a culture that where that becomes an issue at the most critical point of the year as it is? You would think that everybody, if they're horseshoe guys, would be there during the home stretch. Okay, guys, like we've. It's like when you're a little kid and you're going on vacation, and your mom like hands out little suckers to you in the car because you're driving from Indianapolis to Chicago. The Colts are in Crown Point right now, like they're that close. Okay, kids, if you can just. But we're going to play a game to see like who can be quiet in the car the longest. They're that close, and they acted up. It's a negative. So, I mean, there's no positive spin that you can put on it, except for that, yeah, I, I guess give them credit for. And I think it's Shane Steichen. I do like the fact that Steichen, as a rookie head coach, is not afraid to, to – I mean, I like the fact that this dude, whether this is a Steichen decision or a Ballard decision – I like the fact that Shane Steichen does present himself in a way where you look at it and you go, you know what, like the buck stops with that guy. Well, that, well, that is the positive, right? Whether it was Ballard or whether it was Steichen, again, it is a negative, but the way you don't compound it into two negatives is you take care of it, you cut the problem off at its head, and you're like, all right, sorry, no, we're not tolerating this because of how important these final three games are. I agree with you, Jake. It's, it's a negative look for those two, and it's a negative look for the idea of the Colts culture and, 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 and for the horseshoe and all that. Like I, I get that that part is negative, but it would be further compounded if you were not, whether you're first year head coach or whether you are longtime general manager, stepping up, taking action and saying, we're not tolerating this. Like that, that is the positive takeaway of it for me is the quest to win these final three games and make the playoffs is more important than saying, ah, it's all right. Don't worry about it. And we'll just, make you do extra drills or you're right. going to miss a game. Well, it does make you wonder what it was and, and Wild, that- wildly so because I can't like and I get it I'm not like I don't I'm not a gossiper like I don't I don't need to know what it was, but being able to know what the conduct was helps you I don't want to say rationalize it, but it helps you really come to terms with if it's a larger issue or if it's a one-off type thing. We had that same conversation when Grover Stewart got popped right, for performance enhancing. And then it happened later in the year with al Muhammad, even though he had hardly seen the field at all, was a practice squad guy. But then you start to think, well, is it systemic? Because it's two players that play similar positions. With this one, without the clarity of what it was they did, all you can do is look at the two sides you've presented, which is, A, it's a bad look for them, it's a bad look for the team, but it'd be an even worse look if you didn't do anything. I think the thing that 
you know, to Eddie's point, I mean, it, McKenzie's on a one-year deal. I mean, it, that seemingly kind of takes care of that, right? Yeah, it's over. He's not back next year, unless it's for just special teams alone. And, and again, you know, the, it's a position that the Colts have been defiant to anybody who said that they haven't addressed that position enough. That's the larger issue. And then, you know, it's like, no, no, no. Like we're, And then late in the process, they end up acquiring a guy for that position kind of like, see? See, we took care of the need. Where's everybody now? Where's Bowen? Always talking about wideouts. Where is he? Well, you signed a wideout that then with three weeks to go in a, in a one-year deal that is expiring with no postseason guaranteed – what is guaranteed for Isaiah McKenzie is that he had three games remaining on a contract with the Indianapolis Colts. That part is guaranteed. And now he's removed from it. And he was insignificant when he played the position this year. Correct. Right? You're getting outplayed by other players on the roster. You're getting outplayed by rookies. Like It, it, it was a moot signing that turned to Kevin's larger point and has been the point that I have, te- I have uh, put at bay during this run but we'll be reactivating and we'll do it now, but especially once we get into draft season, is whether you think that Anthony Richardson is the franchise quarterback or not, whether you think the Colts have found him or not, I want to see more, but I feel like there's a good reason to think he could be. You are doing a disservice to yourself, to Anthony Richardson, to the franchise, to the city of Indianapolis, if you don't take the same approach that the Jaguars did in year two of Trevor Lawrence, which is a large majority of the offseason moves they made, was to make life easier for their quarterback. And there are multiple ways that we'll have plenty of time to discuss how they can do that. I know T. Higgins has been the most popular name. Whether that's realistic or not, it's neither here nor there. There will be opportunities for them to address. Offseason-based work should be focused on making life easier for Anthony Richardson. That's a conversation we will reactivate, like I said, once this playoff push and however far they go ends but that is the larger issue at play when you have a move that was made that was thought to eh, it's gonna fix some things with Isaiah McKenzie and then not only does it not do that his season ends with a three-game suspension you know the the T Higgins thing to me is pretty fascinating T Higgins is a very good receiver he is not a separation receiver he, he would be my hesitation with T Higgins who's a great player when he's healthy He's pretty injury prone. It's not his fault. But like, look up how many games T. Higgins has missed in his career. But my thing with T. Higgins is this. He's not a separation guy. So maybe you're not as worried. Maybe that elongates his career because he is not reliant upon getting separation at the line in terms of getting himself open. He just is a big target that can contour his body. He makes every impossible catch. Like, literally, the problem with T. Higgins, if it hits him right between the numbers, <laughs> it's probably 50-50, but the 50-50 balls are 100-0 every yeah. time. Like, he yeah. makes – he contours his body. Listen, I watched every single play that he made in college and the vast majority of his plays in the pros, but he's not as – you know, I remember in the Alabama National Championship game, he caught a pass that – he and Justin Ross, to use a, a, a kid's term, they balled out in that game, right? And – when Trevor Lawrence was a freshman. Justin Ross had two different plays where he's making catches and he's gone, and T. Higgins is getting caught from behind. He's getting run down from behind. That's always been his play. He's not a speed guy. So in that regard, 
you don't have to worry about like speed going away because he's been playing without that element of his game as a professional receiver. But as soon as like that, you do need first step burst to be able to get some separation. And once that goes away for him, he's a decent route runner, It's but he has been reliant upon his, his hands and his basically his vertical, his ability, you know, to, to get up, to get footballs. I, once the natural step of that goes away, then he could be pretty pedestrian. But the bigger issue with T. Higgins is this. He's been, would you say, Jimmy, a top what? If you were listing the best receivers in the NFL, T. Higgins is probably, like, you know when you click on something yeah. and it's like, what's your age? He, he's what, like 25 to 30? Somewhere yeah, in there? that's where I put him. Yeah. So, I don't know why it is that people think that like the Colts are this automatic link to him because guess what? Two guys that are doing a radio show right now in Charlotte or two guys doing a radio show right now in Atlanta or two guys doing a radio show right now in Nashville that need a receiver on their roster are sitting there saying, you know, I mean, they got to save all their money and go after T. Higgins. T. Higgins is going to get Pittman level money sure. and the money's going to go to Pittman. Then how much do you have left over? When you know if you still think that you can get something out of Pierce or Downs, you got to save a little bit for when you re-sign those guys as well. A couple years away, I realize. But it's a tough situation to get yourself into, especially when you've committed a lot of money already to your running back. I use T. Higgins as the example, right? And I don't disagree with any of the points you made, but there's certain needs that should be attacked for Anthony Richardson this offseason. I would say the most paramount one, if you're not going after a big splashy name, would be another deep threat or somebody that does it more effectively than Alec Pierce. You look at two that would be costly, but would be ones that maybe you'd look at. Hollywood Brown is one who's more on like the lower talented end sign. Calvin Ridley's also going to be up next year. So like you're, you're just looking for ways to where, yes, you might overpay a little bit, but you want to make Anthony Richardson's life easier. And that's the selling point to a free agent outside of the money is the arm talent, right? Like that, this is going to be a quarterback that's going to set you up for success Imagine what you can do paired up with him. That That's the selling point. I get that maybe Carolina could do that with Bryce Young. I'm sure the Titans could do it with Will Levis. But that is your selling point for the Colts in terms of why you'd want to come here and over those teams. Kurt Signetti, by the way, speaking of like next men up or in the fold, is exactly that on this show because the new Indiana football coach joins us in under 15 minutes. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Jimmy, when I was in high school, Kurt Signetti, by the way, joining us just a couple minutes. When I was in high school, this band was the, I remember my freshman year of high school, the album, or in those days it was a tape, that everybody wanted to pass around to everybody was Steve Miller's greatest hits. Like, dude, you got my Steve Miller tape? And that would have been like 19, my freshman year would have been the fall of 87, spring of 88. So at that time, most of the songs on that album were 10 to 14 years old. We, of course, thought that like we were the first installment of high school kids to discover Steve Miller. And then the Steve Miller Band concert. Vintage, right? What's that? (laughs) That'd be classified as vintage, correct? Yeah, but we thought it was like current, you know what I mean? Like we didn't realize that, you know, what we were listening to was 14 years old. But yes, it would have been vintage. So then the the concert, 
the summer, like the, the summers that we all first had our driver's license, the big summer concert that everybody wanted to go to was the Steve Miller Band. So my question for you, Jimmy Cook, is that band for you would be who? Like, who was the band when you were in high school that, like, everybody, like, was totally, you know, their their summer concert was the place to be? I So, again, this undercuts the segment. I, I'll answer the question halfway because I'm not a big band guy, but we were big into, like, rapid hip-hop. There was an artist by the name of J. Cole, who everybody knows now, but, like, he had a mixtape that came out when I was in high school and everybody thought okay. it was like the greatest thing ever. We so, thought, oh man, we just, but we didn't discover it the whole world. Like, right. like you mentioned. So that to me was, was easy. E. I remember when dope man by NWA and boys in the hood by easy E came out, somebody had a tape and it was passed all around. It was dubbed. Todd Geyer was the first person to, to get the tape of it and it was passed all around and it was mind blowing to people. And we thought that we were the first ones to discover it. And of course, what we didn't realize was that we were actually part of a pop cultural phenomenon that years later would be a best-selling movie made about the fact that NWA and Eazy-E in sure. particular were they were the bridge that was gapping quite frankly white suburban America and African American urban America because all of a sudden now we were listening to the same music of kids and that was a bond to be honest with you like I played basketball and when we went to Arlington or Tech into kids that socioeconomically or demographically might have been different than I, we had the bond in the fact that it was the same music we were listening right. to. Public Enemy was a big part of it, too. Um, I don't know that they were listening to Steve Miller Band, but but we <laughs> thought Steve Miller Band, I just remember all of us like, yeah, dude, the Joker, man, that song's awesome. Well, I mean, yeah, it was like came out in 74, right? And for whatever reason, we thought we were the we thought we were so ahead of the times. We thought we were the best. I, I figured you would have said, you graduated in what year? From high school, yeah, thirteen. So what? What year was? So that was that after? And my my apologies because the years to me it's all okay. run together. So were you after Blink One Eighty Two? Was that like two thousand two thousand five? Yeah. Limp Biscuit would have been fifteen years before you, right? Yes. Because those guys all sucked, right? Eddie, who was your band? Oh boy, I did. You guys ever leave the house like <laughs> until like a year ago? <laughs> We both fail you in this criteria of conversation because we're not big concert guys. Right. Well, if, I, if I, I mean, was looking at like... But just like in terms of the music you listen to, like when you were driving to school in the morning, you listened Jay -Z, to... Jay-Z, Kanye, okay. J. Cole. Like that, okay. that was a lot of my drive. I rode the bus, so... An outcast in there, but it was like... That was in the 2000s when they were really big. Did you ride the bus all four years? No, not until I was a sophomore. Yeah, see, then the sophomore year, the, the big scandal at North Central High School... Was you weren't allowed to drive to school unless you were a junior or senior. But by the spring oh, no, junior, of junior, yeah, junior and seniors when North Central it was only two years, right? But all of a sudden, like you used to have to get to school at seven o'clock in the morning before the parking lot would fill up. By the springtime, all of a sudden you'd have to get to school at like six forty-five because all the sophomores were getting their license and somehow getting a parking placard and parking, and it was all hell breaking loose because everybody's <laughs> like, "Dude, that kid's a sophomore and he's parking here, man." Yep. Carl Spooth's a sophomore and he's parking in my spot. I'm going to turn him in. It was a big scandal, man. Eddie, were you a sophomore scandal driver? No, I didn't get my license until I was a junior. I forgot. Because I was going to get it when I was a sophomore. Then Your first car was what? I tore my ACL. It was a Chevy Tahoe, 2002. Nice. Look at you. Yeah. Nice. It was my mom's. Give me your first car. 2005 Cadillac. 
<laughs> because my dad wow. my dad got his license taken away around the same time. They didn't know what to do with the car, so I lucked out. I, did ah, not, okay. I don't have a horror like uh, car story. He, my, my dad had transitioned into not driving anymore. And I had an 83 Mitsubishi Tredia, and let me tell you, it had a power knob on it that you kicked it down, and it went from four cylinders to five. <laughs> power, 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 baby. Uh, Kurt Signetti knew the guy in charge with the power of Indiana football joins us next. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. It has now been just about three weeks since our next guest was named as the head coach of the Indiana Fighting Hoosiers down in Bloomington. And what I love about it, Jimmy Cook, you know my number one factoid of fun about Kurt Signetti. There's a lot that I like about it, but you know my number one fun fact that I'm convinced, and if somebody can prove this to be inaccurate, it doesn't matter. I'm convinced it's still true. Give it to me. I don't know. He has to be. Has to be. The only man in the history of college football to coach not one but two different Indiana universities, right? It's got to be an undisputed fact. I would right. agree with you. Can we ask him if, if that's, <laughs> yes. that's the case? Coach Kurt Signetti, the new coach of the Hoosiers, joins us now. Coach, you've got to be the only guy to have that claim, right? I mean, you would think so. We don't know that factually, but I know the first one won a lot. This one's going to win a lot, too. Yeah, we're rolling with it, right? I like that. Listen, I want to get right to that from the get-go, and that is um, – I appreciate because I've you know I know that you've done a number you've been on a couple of shows here on this radio station for example and you have not shied from talking about the fact that your vision clearly understandably is to win football games at Indiana and you are confident that's got to happen sooner rather than later. Um, it, it, how much of that has always been the mantra and how much of that is because you believe this is a program that needs that sort of belief pumped into it? I mean, you know. That's what happens in our program. It's not just me. It's our assistant coaches. It's players. It's choosing the right people as coaches and players. I mean, we've flipped the roster. You know, I feel like I've done this a couple times already. This is just a bigger stage. Um, But so why shouldn't we be confident? I mean, we're used to winning. I guess we have to change the way people think. Not only are players uh, that were on the previous teams and still remain, but uh, you know, the fan base, the general public, the state of Indiana. Um, I get it. Uh, maybe there is a little smoke in the off season, kind of need to wake people up, get them excited. That's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, you get to be my age, you don't, you, you lose your filter a little bit. You're not worried about maybe pissing somebody off and maybe <laughs> I love help it. You down the road because you're near the end anyhow. Right. <laughs> like I'm yeah. on about the 12th hole. So I got about 10, 12 years left. That's it. So, uh, you know, what else can I do except win here and create a legacy and, and uh, build this program into something that a lot of people thought was, like, impossible? But why should it be impossible? I mean, it's a beautiful place. I mean, we got what everybody else has, right? We have a commitment, too, from the president and the AD. They want to win in football, right? So I probably have some things other guys didn't have. And I also know what I'm doing. So with that, Coach, how much of – take me through the process. Kurt Signetti is our guest, the new head football coach at Indiana. The process of coming in of 
you know, obviously putting your stamp on it, which you're, you're in the process of doing. I think you've already kind of done that. But feeling through the roster and navigating through which guys are going to buy in, which guys that are going to stay, you know, having to kind of re-recruit guys that are in the portal. I mean, take me through the steps of, I guess, finalizing who your program is going to be and when you even know for certain what your roster is going to be. A lot of it's made easier by the portal, to be honest with you. So before the first day before I come in here, the old staff gets together. They do their own top 50 of remaining players on the team. It's averaged out by the director of football ops. It's sitting on my desk when I walk in the office. I know who the top-rated player is, who the 50th-rated player is, right? Um, 40% of those guys might be in the portal already, 35%. Okay. You interview the old coaches. You get a read on every player on the team. Uh, you know, this guy's a great guy, very productive, works hard, positive teammate. You know, this guy can't put it together. Okay, who's in the portal? Who's still on the team? Those portal guys that haven't been productive that have fallen into the negativity, excuse makers, guys that give up, uh, point fingers at their teammates. You know, okay, you're in the portal, fine. I'll see you later. Um, the ones that have been productive, uh, high-character guys, really work hard, consistent day in, day out. You're trying to keep those guys. You don't keep them all. You keep maybe half. Uh, and then you got to go out and find your guys and guys that fit your program. That And I'm into, like, production, not potential. So I'm looking for guys that have put together a number of years as starters and have been productive, have been relatively injury-free, right, and I'm not afraid to dip down a level to find those guys. We've been able to find them without dipping down a level. I've had a lot more success with those kind of guys than going and taking the second slash third team guy at Georgia that has enormous potential. He was just sitting behind some good players. Yeah, there's a reason guys don't see the field. So I want guys that have done it. Coach Kurt Signetti, new IU head football coach, is our guest. Coach, you mentioned the previous turnarounds that you've had building programs kind of from the ground up at IUP, at Elon, at James Madison. How is it different and how is it the same having the resources of a Power 5 conference? I know you mentioned the transfer portal makes it easier as well, but how is it different or the same on this stage compared to the other spots where you've had big turnarounds? The only difference uh, on this one is those other places, the, the transfer portal and NIL didn't exist then. So... You know, as long as you have a commitment uh, to be successful in those areas, then then we'll be successful. There's nothing holding us back from being successful. So uh, in my mind, what's different? Uh, maybe the kids are a little different now in the NIL age, but I've been dealing with that for a while. The fundamentals of being successful haven't changed. So, Co Coach, you said, and I don't know that I agree with this, that you're in the 12th hole. I'll, I'll say you're in the 8th or ninth hole. Is that fair? You know what I mean? Like, Because I'm, right, I'm only a few holes behind you. So, and in radio <laughs> lifetime, I'm probably in the 16th hole, right? So, based on that, right. I'm going to take a swing of a club here on what is potentially, and I'm giving you permission to then say to me, you know, I've done a lot of these interviews, Jake. That's the dumbest question I've been asked. I'm giving you permission to say that when I ask this question, okay? All right. Um, here we go. When you're talking about your roster – and you are replacing an administration. And Tom Allen, who's now the defensive coordinator at Penn State, do you talk to, in the quote-unquote transfer of power, is there any conversation with the previous administration of, hey, I know that you're leaving this situation and it wasn't your call, but 
Can I ask you about a few of the guys on the roster or those kinds of things? Or is it an understood when a coach is being replaced that it is a rip of the Band-Aid and there's no contact for you to get a barometer of what you're inheriting? Well, you know, I do interview every assistant coach uh, for between 20 minutes and an hour uh, about the second day I'm on the job uh, and, and get a feel. I have pretty much kept the recruiting staff in place and the administrative staff, uh, you know, working through recruiting. So those people are still in place. Um, Tom and I actually share the same agent and, uh, you know, I've never met him and, uh, didn't talk to him. I know he went away on a trip shortly after I was hired. So didn't really feel, uh, you know, like the timing was right to reach out. So, uh, I got a good feel for who's who around here and what's what. Um, and, uh, you know, we flipped the roster and, uh, this team's going to look a lot. This roster is going to look a lot different in January when the guys come back. How will it schematically be different? People that are going to come to watch Indiana football are going to see, and and I'm curious, you you know, when you're coming from the Sun Belt, for example, is football football, or do you have to look at it and say, okay, what we did at JMU needs some tweaking, needs some changes, we've got to go under a completely different scheme, or do you just bring the same blueprint and hope it translates into the Big Ten versus the Sun Belt? The blueprint isn't X's nose. The blueprint is kind of what I learned from my dad, what I learned as an assistant, and a lot of what I learned from Saban, and then learned as a head coach. It's more philosophical and what you believe in and the principles and values of your program and what you preach and how you play the game and the mindset you create and the culture, the identity, the expectation level, the accountability. Um, you know, X's and O's. A lot of great, you know, a lot of people have great X's and O's. Those, those don't win games, man. Uh, but since we're talking X's and O's, right? I think we've always been on the cutting edge offensively and defensively, and we do a really good job on teams. But you're always looking to improve because you really do get better or worse. You never stay the same. At the end of the day, you got to be able to block, tackle, run, catch, and do those kind of things to be successful. But you got to put your playmakers in position on offense to make plays. Uh, defensively, you know, you got to get your right guys on the field and do a great job stopping the run and pressuring the quarterback, right? Creating turnovers. Special teams have to be great, no question about it. And you got to find the edge every week, you know, and you are. You're coaching against guys that, uh, you know, have been doing this quite a while. But look, I mean, you know, there's bad NFL coaches, there's bad NFL assistant coaches, there are great high school coaches. You follow my drift? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and I so, get, you know, the, I want to go back to your dad, actually, because when you talk about great coaches at the college level, I mean, your dad is a guy that's, you know, in the College Football Hall of Fame. He won a lot of games at West Virginia. He's also a guy that went to Indiana, not the one here that you're coaching now, but Indiana, Pennsylvania. Um, I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, coach, but, you know, you had Nick Saban as kind of a mentor. Your dad would have had that with Bobby Bowden, correct? Correct. How much of Bobby Bowden, um, I thought personally, Coach, and I want to go back to this, Bobby Bowden as as a football man, you know, obviously had great success. And I don't know if this story is even maybe embellished or was Hollywoodized, if that's a word. But in the movie We Are Marshall, it talks about how after Marshall's football 
tragedy of their plane crash that Bobby Bowden, who was at West Virginia, which was the big dog in the state, Marshall's the smaller school, the kindness that he showed in helping Marshall and and reaching out to them, or actually when they reached out, you know, being open to them, I thought it really kind of opened the door to what kind of a character person Bobby Bowden was. And uh, I'm curious what kind of, I guess, principles your father might have learned from Bowden, if any, that were passed on to you, and then as a result, how you were able to kind of combine those with the things you learned from Nick Saban, because we're talking about two of the real behemoths in college football history. Yeah, and then I had to run with Johnny Majors also. Um, I think, without question, uh, Coach Bowden uh, had the greatest influence on my dad as a person and a football coach. And, you know, it just so happened as a third grader when we went to Morgantown, uh, Coach Bowden's first year there, I was the kid on the sideline in the locker room at halftime, <laughs> you know, listening to Bobby Bowden talk to the team at halftime. Uh, so he had a big influence on my dad. And, you know, even though I never played for my dad or coached for my dad, my dad obviously had a very big influence on me. Uh, and when I went with Coach Saban, I had a number of years under my belt already. After one year with him, I, I felt like I'm ready, you know, because he had it together then. He had been a head coach for 11 years, put his years in at Michigan State, LSU, and the Dolphins. You know, generally when you're a head coach, you make you make your mistakes year one, two, and a few on three. By the fourth year, you, you're kind of up to speed. Uh, by then, Nick was in year 11. He was, like, on top of his game. So, like, that was a great learning experience. Was there a period for you, Coach? Kurt Signetti, the new football coach in Indiana, is our guest. You know, even with all of that and seeing success and having, you know, that blueprint to use that word again, but for you personally, whether it be through the periods when you were an assistant or whether it be at IUP or Elon or, or maybe early in James Madison, was there a moment that you can look back on in the career of Kurt Signetti and say, you know, I ask my players to deep down, like dig and find beyond and break through a period where maybe they they are questioning themselves and I want them to break through that barrier. What was that moment for you? What would there was there a moment in your career that you can look back on and say, that's where I was the most tested. And because I overcame that, I'm confident now yeah, that I'm about to turn around Indiana. I think the Elon story is pretty amazing, to be honest with you. Um went in there they had built nice facilities. It was a nice place. Um, I don't remember exactly what their record was over the previous five years, but it was really bad. Like I say five and 45, but it may have been eight and 48 or nine. You know what I mean? Right. And, and nobody on campus believed they could win in football. Nobody. The AD didn't even believe it. And, you know, I'd been a head coach for six years and, um, you know, we had, we had some talent on that team, and those kids were hungry. And we went up to Toledo the first game of the year, and they won the MAC that year. And we really played hard. And and after that game, I said to myself, "We got a shot." And you know, I'm I'm pushing all the buttons I can to like, you know, get them get their juices going. Like, you know, the official pregame comes out, knocks on our door, says, "Coach, you got to get out of here. You're late." You know, and I'm like, I'll take this team, blank, blank, team out when I'm blank, blank, ready. <laughs> right. You know, and they they erupt. You know what I mean? And, uh, but we played well. We went on to win eight in a row after that game. Just 
eight in a row. Like Nobel come to the game. They told me they couldn't get in the games, you know, signs. We want Bama. So the next year we're four and one, right? We lost to a power five team. We go up to JMU to play. Now we're a good football team. Somehow some, and they got like a 22, 25 game home winning streak. Somehow we're a 38 point underdog. I, I can't figure that out, but we are. We go up there and, and beat James Madison. And so those two that season and that game and that moment, like I knew, like something special has happened here. And there are more special moments going to happen down the road. Coach, when I was a student at IU, I won't out the coach, but it's easy to figure out the math there. Uh, it famously would come through the mess halls at times to try to get students more engaged, more involved behind the football program. IU students infamously are out of there by the third quarter because of the struggles that have been there. And I know you mentioned that Elon, it felt like across the board, even the athletic department wasn't buying into the football could be a winning product. Whereas at least in your case, it feels like the athletic department is behind you. Do you have a barometer yet of where the pulse of the fan base is, or is it too early for that in terms of they believe or they buy into the idea that you can turn them around and make them a winning product? I mean, I've had people tell me that they haven't seen people as excited about football in 30 years, this time of year. I can only go by that social media group. You know, what percentage are they? I don't know. But, you know, they're they're doing cartwheels upside down. I've never seen more cigarette memes. I'm not trying to promote that. It's bad for you, but they're out there. <laughs> you know, uh, hey, look, build it and they will come, right? It was a movie. I mean, win games, make it fun and exciting, and you'll pack the stadium, and it'll be wild and crazy, and that's what will happen this fall. Now, I'm going to guess – that like probably maybe even and this is I, I could be totally wrong in this. My hunch tells me the only misstep you've had so far, Coach, and it wasn't in public, is that you might have actually been rooting for the Pittsburgh Steelers against the Colts. I, I'm just guessing that you were a childhood Steelers fan. Am I off base there? Well, I went in the seventies. I was a diehard Pirate, Steeler, Penguin fan. But I'll be honest with you, I probably haven't watched an NFL game straight through maybe in the playoffs you know i get they get to the end i'll watch them and see. i haven't probably seen three nfl plays all year yeah no year. i get that you're a little busy right yeah was roberto clemente your guy oh yeah i remember the day i heard where i was yep and he, uh, you would have been what probably nine years old right something like that nine or ten years old 71 around 10 that's yeah. the year they beat the orioles in the world series Yep, his, he had a double for his 3,000th hit. I think that was his last hit, actually. One of the great humanitarians and players. Um, Proud as a peacock, right, that picture? Yeah. Kurt Signetti, our guest, the new head football coach at Indiana. What's your favorite thing so far, uh, non-football related, just about Bloomington? Or, you know, I'm sure it's kind of a whirlwind, but you've had a chance now to kind of get your feet under you. Um, what do you like about it? What do you like about the community and just the, the position that you're in now? Well, to be honest with you, I haven't seen the town during the day yet. And I live two blocks from downtown in a temporary house. I mean, I leave at 4.30 in the morning. It's dark. I get home 11.30 at night. It's dark. Um, what I like the most right now is the commitment I'm getting from the top to be successful and how excited they are and how excited the fan base is and the results that we've produced in three weeks here 
in terms of changing the roster. You know, the 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 culture at Indiana, to your point, Coach, is, you know, uh, people love going down for the games as a social event. I, you know, I think Indiana fans have become just accustomed to seeing it as that and not a football event. And then you go out at Assembly Hall, you grab the microphone, and I want to. I'm assuming you still stand by it, right? I mean, you grabbed the mic, and the crowd went bonkers because you you just went ahead and said, you know what, Purdue sucks, and so to, it was the addition of Ohio State and Michigan that sold me. To be honest with you, right? Like, was that just basically just impromptu? Let's go. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and you stand by it, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Coach, what goes into, I know you're not going to give us the secret sauce necessarily, but, but what goes into flipping a recruit in the transfer portal or, or, or flipping a player in the transfer portal or rather landing a recruit like you guys were just able to do with Tyler Cherry out of Center Grove? You know, a lot. I mean, football's changed quite a bit, and there's a lot that goes into that. And, you know, without discussing it in great detail, um, you know, recruiting is a lot different than it was five years ago. I would think, Coach, I was curious about this with the portal itself because you've been very active in it, you know, on both sides. But and and I pardon my naivety here. Are you formally speaking is a program not allowed to contact a player until they have officially thrown their name into the transfer portal? Or and I'm not saying your practice with it. But are there coaches that begin recruiting guys before they even have decided they're going to transfer because of the almost free agency nature of college football today? Right. Uh, you can contact a player in the portal uh, once he is in the portal. So even though he tweets he's going in, you got to verify it uh, online that he's actually in. Uh, does tampering go on? There's no doubt about it. It goes on now. Do I do it? No. Do I tolerate it? No. Well, I, do I send a message to my coaches not to do it? Yes. Because you don't have to, right? You don't have to. They're going to be in the portal. And once they're in the portal, you can recruit them. It's like these James Madison guys, right? These guys chose to go in the portal, right? If I don't recruit them, somebody else is going to recruit them. So, you know, it just so happens today in college football, if you fire the coach, or the coach leaves, a lot of guys go in the portal. Do I feel bad for James Madison that a lot of these guys went in the portal? I do, because I really cared about that place. I like it. I like the people, the leadership, et cetera. But once they went in the portal, I got to do my job. You know, I'm 100% committed to IU, so I've got to recruit them. Coach, I've always felt that Indiana high school football is a little bit underrated in terms of the level of talent that you can recruit out of the state. You agree? It's hard for me to give you an intelligent answer on that one. I'm still learning about the state. Um, I mean, I truthfully have not spent a lot of time here in the past recruiting. Uh, I know where the I know a lot more about the state now than I did three weeks ago. I know where the pocket of players generally are, uh, and I know there's good pockets. And I believe that building a program begins with your state. Well, Coach, in conclusion, when I was in college, I interned with a really dear buddy of mine who went to James Madison. He lives in the Philly area. He goes to James Madison football games about every home game, and he texted me literally the day of the announcement and was said, you know what? 
I'm really mad that you took our football coach, but I guess now it gives me reason for us to bond by rooting for Indiana. So we're going to try to get Doug Weiler to convert from – he'll still be loyal to JMU. That's his school, but we're going to try to get him on board with the Hoosiers as well. Let's go. We're going to get a lot of people on board. <laughs> I appreciate it. Coach, we'd love to have you back on. Enjoy getting to know Bloomington, and best of luck in the continued work with turning around the Hoosiers. All right, guys. Have a good one. All right. Kurt Signetti, the new head football coach at Indiana. And again, uh, Indiana-Pennsylvania at one time. What what's Indiana Pennsylvania's mascot? Do we know? Are we going to guess? Offhand. I'm going to go with the Hawks. Eddie, you got a guess? Ooh, I'm saying Bearcats. Bearcats, a good guess. Okay, Eddie. I will go Cougars. Cougars, also an outstanding guess. Whoa! I, see, this had to have been like Bader Meinhof phenomenon. Like I had to have seen this at one point and known it. And the, the IUP. No, sorry, they're the Crimson Hawks. So if you just see a regular hawk, that's not – it's a no. crimson hawk. Like you, Eddie, you were a hawk, right? You were a Decatur Central hawk? Yep. Were they crimson? What were your colors? Blue and gold, right? Yes. Were you, were you known as like the blue hawks? No. The just gold the hawks. hawks? Just the hawks. Just the just – the, what, what was it you were driving around in? A Yukon? What were uh, you driving? A Chevy Tahoe. The Tahoe hawks. That's Decatur Central. Man, Chevy Tahoe. That's my mom's old car. She uh, she got a new car, and then I got hers. Still, man, you could you could haul half the baseball team in that bad boy. Oh hell yeah! I'm not going to say that Chris <laughs> Farkas had one, and we might have covered the license plate a few times because it was he had a Bronco though. But I'll tell you, I'll just say the off roading potential was fabulous. So we life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. We're just sitting here talking, and thanks to Kurt Signetti, by the way, fun conversation with the new head football coach at Indiana. We were just talking about the Colts situation, and Jimmy, you said there's some more, I guess, report, rumor, which would it be here when it comes to the two I, players yesterday that found out their years for the regular season complete? Call it a visual report. Uh, Nate Atkins of the Star, who we've had on, and he's been on these airways many a time, tweeted about a half hour ago, Isaiah McKenzie and Tony Brown have had their lockers removed from the Colts' locker room. Uh, James Boyd of The Athletic, who again we've had on the show before, quote tweeted that same tweet and said, speaks to the severity of the suspension. So take with that what you will, but that goes against my logic of, well, what happens if they make the playoffs? Because if you're, I mean, I get it. It could be a, a road game, right? If the division doesn't fall their way, but it's, that feels drastic. That now, feels a lot of permanent. people have asked me this, and I'm sure you as well. To be fair, I, I don't know if, and, and eventually it'll come out. It always comes out, right? It always comes out. What happened? And what exactly could have taken place? Well, the terminology was conduct detrimental to the team, correct? Yes. So if it's conduct detrimental to the team, typically what that means are not exclusive to, but more often than not, the following. Fighting in the now they play opposite one another. Maybe they got into a huge fight on the field and it carried over to the locker room. One would think that that would be like an isolated incident, and 
that would be disciplined like internally or whatever else. But fighting with one another or in the locker room would be would usually fall into that category. Blatantly disregarding the command or wishes of coaches would fall into that category, meaning fighting with a coach, talking back to a coach, being obstinate. Now, for if it's two players, one would think that in, they're in two different areas. That would be probably pretty hard to imagine. Um, missing bed check, honestly. And I like that Repeated. scenario. Because late the, to meetings, the the, the comedy. Well, I was going to say skipping our late to meetings would be one. Yes. The comedy of being late for bed check has me uh, envisioning Shane Steichen and Chris Boward in the living room with the light on. That's just right, waiting for them to. It's eleven oh five, boys. You had a curfew. Skipping or being late to meetings would be one, Eddie. The only thing there again, and maybe, and I don't know. You know, two different, and one would think that perhaps when it comes to film sessions, in fact, the the DBs and wide receivers might be, or maybe special teams meetings. I mean, if they're both special teams guys, that, that probably is more likely. Missing meetings or being obstinate. I, I think missing a meeting or being a late to a meeting is one thing, but I think openly defying a meeting is the other. Well, but if it was missing meetings, to me that has to be multiple violations for it to be three games. I feel like one game suspension would be fine if you're looking at, and we're just speculating here, but if you are handing out a three-game suspension or a suspension that lasts the rest of the season, if it's something that could seem minor, like missing a meeting, you would think that's either of a repeat offender status or of a higher severity, like you're pointing out. Yeah, I I think, and again, apparently Stephen Holder had said that, that it was not a fighting or legal issue. My... Probably what Eddie is mentioning is the most likely in the fact that it was within the special teams parameter and it was some sort of an issue of being obstinate about or defiant and being detrimental to the team. But the reality is this. This is a franchise that, to their credit, to their credit, is in a position that is much better than we anticipated at the outset of the season was the position they were going to find themselves in. Going back to Grand Park, going back to the beginning of the year, hell, Isaiah McKenzie joined uh, Kevin and I on the morning show and talking to him, and he was one of their big gets kind of – big gets is maybe the wrong word, but a guy that was thought to be able to help them in areas where they had been criticized for not addressing – Tony Brown is a special teams guy that when he when his number was called to play in the defensive backfield, uh, I believe he's the one that I called toasted Tony Brown. Like it literally, it, it he should have a a, a sponsorship with Kellogg's because it sounds like a cereal. We toasted Tony to t-shirts. He's made. also this a guy close. that got a lot of praise from Chris Bauer. He was like, I love Tony Brown. I freaking love Tony. And one of his uh, press conferences before the start of the season. Well, that obviously changed. That's not quite the ringing endorsement I think people think it is. Um, Here's the thing. I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning of the show. And I'm not saying that one way is definitively right or wrong. And I don't even know which way I go with it because I kind of flip-flap back and forth, admittedly. But it's very difficult to praise a franchise for its culture and talk about how, and routinely talk about, 
you ever run with guys in in high school that talked about all the girls they were getting and then oh, yeah. like later you found out you're like that guy never had a single date but he talked a big game right the guys that talked were always the, and then you find out like after the fact there's some other guy from high school and you're like dude he went out with like 30 different girls and never said a word about it oftentimes he or she who is the most vociferous about their brand or identity are those that are the most insecure about it. And I think all franchises do this in defense of the Colts, but the Colts are very openly at any point forward about telling you that it's about the culture and it's about being a horseshoe guy and it's about representing the shoe and all of those things. And Chris Ballard, in his defense, has been open at times about, hey, fringe players on the roster, I'm willing to take a gamble on them if I think there are character issues because I want to have a strong enough locker room that can set those guys on the narrow and it's not as big a risk if the overwhelming culture of the locker room is that of principle and discipline. And I get it. That's cool. But it's very difficult to talk from December until May or June or July about how culture is the thing that matters and discipline is the thing that matters and leader of men is the thing that matters when then you get into the regular season and the year begins with one of your key players being suspended by the league for gambling, a second player being suspended for a lengthy period of time for gambling, Then you get into the league. You have one player who's a marquee player that holds out. You have another player who is a marquee player and misses a portion of your season for violation of PEDs. And we can get into the the nuance of that and how absurd it is, but 98% of the league doesn't fall victim to that absurdity. Then when he comes back, he has to hold the door for another guy that's on his way out because he just got popped for the same thing. And then you have two more players that are having their lockers removed and are essentially done with at least this season. Certainly for the regular season, in totality, they're done at the most critical juncture of the season. In a vacuum, this is the most critical three-game stretch. All three-game stretches are important, but right now, with what is in sight, it is a critically, the most critical, important stretch for them. And this is a franchise that two years ago, during a critical stretch, with a 90% playoff chance or whatever it might be in those, you know, the sabermetric whatever formulas that it's weird that they actually play games if those things just determine everything officially. 90% chance the Colts were going to make the playoffs. And yet they're some of their most critical players knew they were taking a risk at something and that risk blew up on them and they were not available. So you can't preach to me about how one of the key entry points of the franchise is the culture and the discipline to be able to buy into the horseshoe if you are once again having to discipline guys. Which is it? Are you disciplining them because you are a franchise of great character or are you a bad judge of character because you thought guys fought, fell into that exact criteria and then in turn you got bit by it again? Shaq Leonard, you could say that they released Shaq Leonard because everyone's accountable. Okay, 
clearly that message wasn't sent because if everyone's accountable, you got two more guys that, yes, you can say on one hand that you're holding them accountable, but on the other hand, you can say they actually just – and, yeah, these aren't mainline players. I get it. But clearly, if they are fringe players of questionable character, that you feel your locker room was going to offset that because they had a culture that was going to offset that negativity from those two players, that just failed because clearly the locker room did not get these guys – to fall in line because they were released for conduct detrimental to the team. And it's not an isolated incident, Jimmy. That's my concern. It's not an isolated incident. And I get the fact that when you're dealing with 50-plus human beings, no matter what line of work you're in, whether you're an architecture firm or an advertising firm or a bottling plant or a radio station, it's difficult to get everybody within the same step. I get it. I totally get it. But that's part of why you can't consistently sell it to me that that's what you're doing because consistently you're having to come back and offer me a rebate. Kevin Bowen highlights this very well on 107.5thefan.com. His work's always tremendous, but you can get the piece from Shane Steichen's comments. I, I've, I've officially flipped the other way. Uh, I don't think this is a... It is a negative for the selfishness of Isaiah McKenzie and Tony Brown, but this is a first-year head coach that has had a couple of crossroads moments already this season that haven't had to do with wins or losses. It's had to do with the type of coach you're going to be, what you're going to tolerate if somebody's bigger than the team itself. And you mentioned and highlighted it well, Jake, with Shaq Leonard. That's a player that was at a time when he was paid what he was paid, was supposed to be a face of the franchise, was a face of the franchise. And you move on from him because it's a turning point and you realize that, no, it's our time with you is done. It's time to move on. And then swiftly, we'll never be able to fully answer this until we know what they did. But whether it was something the league could have penalized McKenzie and Brown for or not, it is a first-year head coach that has shown time and time again, and it is disgruntling that he's had to do it time and time again, but he's shown that he's going to be extremely accountable, and he's not going to tolerate it, and there's no long leash here. The clarity of knowing what they did would help rationalize if this is a systemic thing where they really need to look at the roster and figure out why disciplinary actions are needed. But the fact that he's not afraid to make those disciplinary actions is, and maybe this is the glass half full look for me, enough for me to look at what's happened and say, this is a first-year head coach that's grabbing this thing by the reins and is not going to tolerate missteps at the most critical juncture of the year. But what I'm saying to you, I don't disagree with that, Jimmy, but what I'm saying to you is if you are a franchise that is built the way you claim, then those missteps shouldn't be something that first-year coach has to deal with. I would agree. That That's the issue, right? Now... Are these guys that are replaceable? Yeah, probably. But special teams, you know, somebody asked me this question. It's a pretty good one. Isn't Tony Brown the one that accidentally bumped into McKenzie on the muff punt? I, but if it's that, that would lead mm-hmm. to some sort of a fight between them. And, and again, reports are that that's not what it was. I, I don't know that we'll know definitively what it was. It might be, who knows, maybe it was actually that they were involved in a love triangle with Roy Hibbert and Paul George. <laughs> Isn't that what dissolved? I thought that it was Lance team? Stevenson. Well, Lance, it was Lance. I thought Stevenson. it was the Andrew Bynum trade. <laughs> the the Evan Andrew Turner? Bynum trade. That's another one, right? Evan Turner. Yeah. The Evan. Well, Bynum was the. Yeah, Bynum yeah. was it? No, it was a Bynum signing, right? Correct. Yeah, bringing him in. And then the Evan Turner trade is the one that broke somebody. I can't remember who it was. Got broken by that. That broke the confidence oh, yeah. of somebody. It, it. So you know, we never definitively know answers, um, and, and they're not going to say they don't owe it to us to tell us. Am quite, I quite truthfully? Am I in the wrong? Am I the bad person for saying that I'm not fully concerned unless one of two things are occurring? 
A, they're not dealing with it, or B, until it happens with someone of note. Is that bad of me? Like, I get it. It still nullifies the whole Colts culture for the You don't think Grover Stewart's of note? He, he is, but you can isolate that incident with the other ones, right? Like, it's, it's, a, it's a separate thing compared to conduct detrimental to the team. They're both inactions that have caused you to miss time, but... What's the... Let me ask you this. I do what, think Grover... I want that on the record. I what, think Grover what is Stewart is the position? If the, Michael Pittman Jr. would have gotten in trouble for this, then I would be like, okay. Okay. That, what if Michael Pittman Jr. is in trouble from a health standpoint, and even though he's not necessarily a mainline player who has shown much this year, who is a player that if everybody has to elevate a rung because Michael Pittman Jr. is not there, who's the guy that becomes an important part of the wide receiver room? I mean, I, I wouldn't have said McKenzie to start the year. I'm not trying to undercut your point. I would have said Downs. I would have said Pierce. Uh, but my, again, Jimmy. But to your point, yes, you would want another body say, there. Yes, what I'm, I'm saying not, is, if Michael, if the wide receiver room is capacity of four, yeah, and Michael Pittman Jr. or capacity of three, and Michael Pittman Jr. can't go in the room because the lights are too bright and he's in concussion protocol, right? Who's the guy that then gets admitted into the room? Would have been McKenzie in that right. case. So now, all of a sudden, if he's not there, he's out, right? And you have that. That's the challenge. Sure. Is uh, yeah. Is he a great wide receiver? No, of course not. I don't, yeah, I don't mean but to he undercut is a the point. He's a depth piece, right? right? But it doesn't. It it matters. It matters for for your point. I'm not undercutting that. But from like a win loss standpoint, it's over. Like if Pittman's done, you're not suddenly fixing that because McKenzie's but on the you roster. Can't, unless you're a franchise that's constantly preaching next man up. Correct. And if you're constantly preaching next man up, you can't preach that to me on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, yeah. and then on Tuesday, Thursday, tell me the next man up actually just got kicked out the door. Yeah. Because you're preaching to me on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, character matters, and on Tuesday, Thursday, you say you had guys in with bad character. You're talking out both sides of your mouth. Correct. Right? It's yeah. just a matter of being consistent is sure. all. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not damning them for that. I'm just saying the reality is that sometimes the way things are marketed are in totality glossed a little bit. We all do it. We all do it on your resume. What do people have? Like somebody worked for for ten years. Somebody worked as a pencil sharpener, sure. right? What was your job at the at the at the law firm? You sharpened pencils every day. You know what that's called? On your resume, that's called mechanical engineer of yeah. supply, right? The bigger issue with all of this is the Colts paint this pristine image about the franchise, correct? And now there's a little smudge, correct? There's a couple smudges on the picture doesn't mean the picture is fully ruined. But now you start to worry, is the entire thing going to turn into a disaster? Is it going to be a ruined work of art? Or are they able to restore it and take step forwards to do that? Shane Steichen shouldn't have to do that, but he's not shied away from it as a first-year head coach. That said, the idea of this being a larger issue of maybe it not being a rosy, rainbows and butterflies type of perfect culture, hashtag for the shoe, is a bit concerning. Uh, Hey, Jake. Amir Speed was the one that bumped Isaiah McKenzie on the muff punt. I love this, by the way. Jake, don't rule it out. Paul George was in town to begin the week. There we go. Paul George is oh. the culprit, right? Lance Stevenson came back from Utah in the G League or wherever he was to visit Paul George, and all hell broke loose, and two Colts <laughs> ended up playing, paying the price for conduct detrimental to the team. Beautiful. By the way, Indiana last night struggled. Moorhead State, they ended up getting the win. That's the good news. And they had kind of a an unsung hero that you didn't think going into it that delivered for them. Maybe that's even more good news. But there were some areas of concern. We'll discuss that. And Bruce Weber will join us to discuss that and more coming up in just under 15. Little tidbit. 
Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. I don't know if I'm supposed to say this trivia, but I'm going to. You know, the... Um, is it going to be detrimental to the show? I don't want to have no, to suspend you for three Kansas games. Kansas. Okay, all right, okay. All right. Um, three shows, sir. Our sister station, B105. Yep. They do, you know, like when you when you listen to this to the station online, you can do the thumb up, thumb down for songs or whatever. That song right there has the highest approval rating. High, like amongst music surveys, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi has the highest percentage of like thumbs up. I wouldn't dispute it. I always thought it was overrated, but I mean, how, how can you beat Down Under by Minute Work? So that's just me. Uh, last night, you know, we talked a lot about Indiana, and we will do so with Bruce Weber coming up, but let's give a tip of the cap. We're not wearing hats right now, but if we were, let's give a tip of the cap. How about Thad Mott on the job he's done at Butler? 8-0 at home. Last night, quality win. I mean, you know, uh, uh, they're 1-0 in the league because they beat Georgetown, who we know is down, but still. Now it gets real, though, because Providence is coming off a win against Marquette. Obviously, it's a good league. But we talked to Kurt Signetti just about the challenge, Jimmy, and flipping rosters. That's basically what Butler had to do, right? Is just flip the roster at Butler. And Thad Mata's got a team that we haven't talked a lot about it, but standing at 10 and 2, 1 0 in the league, sure, it gets real now. But for a team that that I myself thought, you know, kept wondering if if Butler was the the right team for the big East. It's a challenging league this year because we know Marquette's good. Providence, obviously, is good. You know, there are a lot of good teams in the Big East, but they've gotten off to a good start. And again, Hinkle Fieldhouse, it, Butler should be tough to beat at home. That's the bottom line, and it's good to see that Butler right now is tough to beat at home. They were a couple baskets here or there. I'm not saying this is where it turned, but they were a couple baskets away from a massive neutral site win over FAU on Thanksgiving. Like They yeah. were right there in that game. And and took it the distance and then some end up losing by five, but it it just it feels different this year. Maybe it was just that 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 first year of growing pains of Thad getting in the right guys, getting things set up to where he wants things to be. You're right, it does get real, but the opportunity for separation or to prove no, this is a different Butler team. We belong here in the Big East, like you mentioned at Providence, at St. John's, and then. I'm not afraid to throw a little Hinkle magic out there. Fifth rank UConn comes to town. Fifth of January at Hinkle. You're right. Like that, that should be a place. Like it was a nightmare for Villanova five, six years ago. That should be the same level of palpability in the air when UConn comes to town here to open 2024. How many people, I've asked this question before, people that are college basketball fans, how many people certainly prior to Brad Stevens getting there, the number is way lower. But how many people know Butler's in Indianapolis? Prior to or now? Now. Like, you just stop. If you go to, like, if we were going to go right now to, give me uh, two teams in the top 25. Give me two random teams that are ranked in the top 25 that are not great. Okay, I'm looking at it right now, okay? We're going to go to a um, Ole Miss, who's ranked 25th. Ole Miss is playing um, Colorado State. At Colorado State, 16th-ranked Colorado State is hosting 25th-ranked Ole Miss. We go there. 20% of the fans are 
Ole Miss fans that like Rocky Mountain High, so they made made the trip out. So we go in and we just randomly ask 100 people at that game, where's Butler University? How many know Indianapolis? Five. Think it's that low? I mean, you might be right. I I would think, I think if you go outside the Big East and you go outside the Midwest slash East Coast, if you yeah. go down South or you go out West, I, I think it's small. I, I think when they had the Final Four here and Butler was in it, and so all the stories about the Hinkle Fieldhouse sure. and Hoosiers, I I would think maybe still, but that was a long time ago. Yeah, man. this goes back to your your music game of what happens totally. if you ask a seven year old. I mean, that was right. thirteen years ago Correct. when they made that. Run. No, I know that's what I mean. That was a long time ago, right? Yeah. I mean. I think most people now know where Gonzaga is, right? Yeah. Do you know where at, Gonzaga is? At a minimum, you know you, it's you out west. Blank there. Do you no, know? At, at, it's in Washington, right? It's in Spokane? That, that, that's yep. right. I know this because when I was on a road trip to Seattle when I was 25 years old, Mike Byron, Dave Steinberg, and I stopped at a restaurant called Senior Froggies. Don't sue me. Statute of limitations. Um, their food was fabulous. Don't get me wrong. It tasted wonderful. We loved every minute of it. We pulled out in Spokane, and we were going to go check out Gonzaga. John Stockton's dad ran a bar there, and we're like, literally, like we we pulled out of the restaurant and got on the road, and, and all three of us at the same time were like, "Did we check the expiration date on the on Senior Froggies?" And we we basically had to break into a building on the fringe of the Gonzaga campus because um, once your body knows you're within range of, of an actual toilet in that situation, <laughs> things become accelerated, and um, yeah, Gonzaga, one of the poor buildings there. I probably still should apologize. Bruce Weber, by the way, mercifully is next. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Now, I'm going to make you guys very uncomfortable here, okay? What's new? And it might make our next guest uncomfortable. I don't want to make him uncomfortable, but... When I was doing the morning show with Kevin Bowen, which is now, of course, the wake-up call with KB and Andy, which I enjoyed working with Kevin and Mark and had a great time with it, but I'm not necessarily a morning person, right? And we, on a couple of occasions, had our next guest on the program, and I thought he was the best guest we had. I thought he was the most informative. I thought he was the most engaging. I thought he was the most personable, but I loved his energy. And had I stayed on that program, at some point I was going to ask him if there's any way that he could like do some sort of a vocal recording of, a, of an alarm clock for me telling me to wake up. <laughs> because when you talk to him, then you want to run through a wall. Now, is that uncomfortable if I say that I'd like to have Bruce Weber on my phone telling me to wake up? No, I don't think so. But you want to ask him, but I, I don't think so. <laughs> it probably makes him uncomfortable, too. <laughs> he was on the call last night for the Big Ten Network with Indiana and Moorhead State Bruce Weber joining us on the show. Hi, Coach. How are you? I'm doing fine, and I, I I'll do anything if it needs you need help getting up. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, man, you 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 are literally like instant energy. You're like the five hour energy drink. I love it, right? Um, hey, uh, let I guess when you coach 340 days a year, you better have energy, otherwise you're in trouble. That is correct, and and of course it's all about getting getting guys with energy. So let's get to last night with Indiana, and you know it was obviously late in the game when they found that energy, but. Um, Give me your overall assessment. Seemed to me like Indiana found something that worked for them against Kansas and stuck with it against Moorhead State, but they never really made adjustment throughout the course of the game, and that allowed Moorhead State to get out on them because Moorhead State handled it differently than did Kansas. But give me your assessment on, let's say, the first 60% of that game. Well, I really think it was a, a little bit of a hangover game. Um, you know, when I talked at the start of the broadcast, you know, my biggest worry as a former coach for for 
the IU team and this coaching staff was, were they going to be mentally ready? Did, were they going to have the energy, the intensity? And, you know, not only the hangover, but people don't always realize you get to these holiday games. They just finished exams last week, and now they get in this routine where they can sleep longer in the morning because they don't have classes. Um, they get out of their regular routine, and we've always found that they get a little lethargic. So, you know, you have this tough loss where I thought for 30-plus minutes, 30, 35 minutes, they played as well as they could against Kansas. Obviously, they just didn't get the – they didn't finish the job. But you have that loss, and then you have the holiday part, and they just couldn't get it going. Um, there was the coaches during the shoot around. They were saying one of the assistants jumped in there and stopped it and said, "Hey, we got to start talking. We got to get some life going." And you know, you think the coaches know it, but the players got to know it, and it, you know, it's easier said than done. And you know, that's what happened. They, I, it wasn't what they were doing I, as much as how they were doing it. it you know, it's it, it's the execution, it's the energy. It's, and then at last, you know, whatever it was, last 12 minutes, you could just see they picked up the energy, They especially on the defensive end, and they, you know, got after them, disrupted them, uh, made it tough, got over ball screens. But there were some possessions early where it was just a simple ball screen, re-screen, and they were getting layups. Um, they were getting dives and you know tip ins. Uh, you know, just they they just didn't. They weren't on their toes and they weren't the aggressor. And credit to Morehead State, they did a great job. They're older guys. They, obviously, it's a big game for them, and uh, they were ready to play. And Indiana was fortunate at the end to finally start making a couple threes and some free throws, and then really doing a good job down the stretch of getting it inside which may put them in foul trouble and got to the free throw line, and they finally made their free throws. Bruce Weber is our guest. We're talking about Indiana's game last night with Moorhead State. Coach, in the Kansas game, it seemed like, you know, Galloway was able, Trey Galloway was able to get a lot of points for Indiana in that game because if they would go inside to renew or wear, then there was basically Kansas was saying, Okay, like we're, we're going to stay here and not switch off down low and and let the wings have their moments. And Galloway was able to to capitalize on that. I felt like last night Indiana tried to do that more, and Morehead State just said, "No, we'll go ahead and, and kind of free up and, and double over it and cut off that wing." And that's where things became difficult. But it seemed to me like Indiana was too reliant on just that combo play and not facilitating offensively elsewhere. Am I being too critical? No, I think a little bit right. They they were they found something that worked against Kansas. Actually, Moorhead State found something that worked against IU's defense, and they they exploited it a lot of the game. Obviously, uh, the one player, Jordan Lathrop, Lathrop, he went you know got in a heat check and went crazy. Had one of those magical games, but IU found something that was working against Kansas. Now they were trying to get it inside. They thought they'd have an advantage yesterday. But they were Moorhead State. Their whole game plan was to blitz that post, to um, double team the post, make it tough. They got some turnovers off of it. I think they really got Ware frustrated and took him out of the game. He had zero points at in the first half, and he's your leading scorer. So 
And then they, you know, people adjust. When you run a play, um, you know, how are you going to guard it? That's the first thing. You know, a couple sets, the little handoffs where Galloway was getting down the lane, they just, Morehead State just did a better job of defending it than Kansas did. And they took it away. They disrupted it. Um, Now you don't make threes and you don't make free throws, and it makes it tough, you know, on your offense. And, you know, you can say, oh, the coach should have tried something else. Well, they, a lot of those shots were open shots and or got them to the free throw line. They just didn't make them. And that, that you know, and I for me, a lot of that is just not being ready to play, um, you know, and, and getting that, that mental part of it. And it, it, I looked at the, at the end of the game, I'm looking, there's two freshmen, two sophomores, and, and Galloway. And, you know, so you got a lot of young guys out there that haven't played a lot of minutes, and they're going to go through some ups and downs and growing pains as, as they move forward in the season. Big Ten Network's Bruce Weber is our guest. Coach, you mentioned this on the telecast last night, looking ahead to March, and the fact that to this point in the young season, IU does not have any big marquee signature wins yet to their name and a loss like that to Moorhead State, which again, they didn't lose. They found a way to win, but you highlighted late game that if they were to lose that game, that's one that could come back to haunt you on Selection Sunday. Is that something as a coach after the fact, after a loss like that, that goes through your mind at all of, okay, now we really got to pick it up because that might be a deciding game when the committee is either saying we're in or out or making the difference between a four seed and a seven seed? Yeah, there's no doubt. All all these games can make a difference. Uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen now, but, you know, they had three marquee games in that non-conference and, in you know, UConn and Auburn and Kansas – um, and they weren't able to get any of those. So now, how do you get a marquee mark win? You, you're going to have four or five. I, I'm not sure. I didn't look at their schedule as they're playing Purdue twice, Illinois twice, Michigan State twice, Wisconsin twice. You know, so you're going to have four or five teams that you're playing once or twice that are going to be, you know, I would say marquee games, uh, you know, chances for marquee wins. So they can get some wins there. Um you know, but you don't want a bad loss like that. Um, and again, I think you know Morehead State's a good team. They're probably going to win their league. Uh, they had veteran guys. I was surprised by their uh, presence inside in the post. They blocked shots. The, the young man from Xavier to transfer Miles was was really intimidating. Did a great job of, of protecting the, the paint for them, which made it tough on Galloway and Ware and. And, and other people that drove to the hoop, um, you know, so they're a good team. But I just I'm looking at the net rating, and you just don't want a home loss to a team like Moorhead on your resume late as you're getting in the late February into March. Speaking of that, Coach Bruce Weber's our guest of the Big Ten Network. Has Purdue put together the most impressive non-conference resume of anybody we've seen like in the last five years? I, I mean. What Matt has been able to do outside of conference, and I'm not talking about March. I know people are going to bring that up, but it's really remarkable the wins they've been able to put together. But this year, to me in particular, the the, the good win column for Indi- for Purdue, excuse me, looks like a CVS receipt. I mean, it's just as long as can be. To me, it's as impressive as I've seen in a long time. What say you? Uh, yeah, I, I would totally agree. I talked to Matt yesterday for quite a while, and. 
it was one thing we talked about, and it's it's it, it actually people don't realize how important scheduling is. And you know, years ago when I was a young young coach trying to figure things out, Coach Katie in a meeting said, you know, scheduling may be more important than recruiting. And I looked at him and I was like, you know, you're you know you're crazy and all this stuff, but. You know, he, he and he started talking about it, and he made me realize, and obviously the more experience I had as, a, as an assistant and a head coach, that scheduling is important. When you have a team like Purdue, they needed challenges. They needed experiences against as many, as many tough opponents they could get. Win or lose, they needed those experiences, and, and they played different styles. Um, you know, you got Marquette. You, even the the, ex, the exhibition game against Arkansas, I thought that was really smart to go on the road and play that game. Uh, you know, so they they played all these different teams from all different parts of the country. It not only gets their resume up there for you know hopefully a number one seed, but it also will have those experiences as they go into March, hopefully into April. Uh, that these players have been through, so it's it, it's he was smart. It's a great resume, um, and it helps to win those games. <laughs> you know, makes it. You know, when you if you lose a few, ask Tom Izzo if he's happy about his schedule right now. It it can put you in a bind. I on the other hand, I would tell you Fred Hoiberg's done a great job at Nebraska, and people have criticized him. He knew he was losing some veteran guys, and he had a lot of new players. And he just played a bunch of home games, and now he's got some wins. He's got some experience. He goes to Kansas State and wins, and 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 wins a game in the conference against Michigan State. So all of a sudden, now they're talking about them being in the tournament. So again, they can schedule yourself into the tournament, and you can also hurt yourself and put yourself in a bind uh, as you proceed into the you know later in the season. If you had too many tough games and you don't get any of those wins, it could make a uh, put a, your team in a big bind. Which team between Indiana and Purdue, Bruce Weber? And look, knowing what you need to do and being able to do it against a team are two different things. I get that. But between Indiana and Purdue, if you were game planning against either of the two of them, which one has the more clear-cut Achilles that you exploit and go after and say – the recipe for beating that team is the following. Would it be Indiana or Purdue that offers the more clear and easy thing to navigate in terms of de- determining what would beat them? Not not executing it, but determining them. Which one has yeah, more I, clear vulnerability? I think that's – I was just going to bring that up. You said executing because I talked with somebody this morning about this. You know, it's one thing to post-trap. But if you don't practice it from day one and the scramble's out of it and it's not part of your regular game you have daily, you can just say, oh, we're going to post that trap, Zach Eady, or where, and you don't have the rotations and stuff, it's, it's hard to do. You just can't do that. You just can't add it into your system. It's got to be something you do daily. Um, so it, it, that execution is important. There's no doubt Purdue has some Achilles heel. That they're, you know, obviously pressure, pressuring the guards, uh, post-trapping Zach. You know, it, they're shooting so much better. It was so much more obvious last year. Make them shoot it from three instead of shooting the ball better. Uh, it, that's kind of taking that away. 
Indiana has, um, I just think because they're younger and they haven't shot the ball away from three right now, they probably have more obvious game plan, Achilles things that you can take advantage of at this point. Now, can Coach Woodson, you know, can they continue to improve? From Auburn to Kansas, they made big improvement. And, it, you know, it helped to play Kansas at home, there's no doubt. And Assembly Hall at a, you know, at a high pitch and a high level is a special place to play, and they took advantage of that. But they've made improvement. That's, you know, they have to continue making improvement, getting more out of other people. To get Walker involved last night off the bench was huge. Uh, I think the two freshmen, you know, if they can continue to improve, not only on the offensive end, but the defensive end, too, it's going to make them more tough to game plan against because they have other options. Bruce Weber of the Big Ten Network, nice enough to take some time with us. Coach, you mentioned IU and their three-point shooting. On the year, they're about 27% from beyond the arc, and they take about just under four a game. The counter to that is, well, they're going to play physically defensively and they're going to hit their threes, even if other teams are going to take a large volume of them. It's going to balance out. From an offensive standpoint, though, that amount of threes a game with that percentage backing it up, I'm not talking about winning a national championship. I'm not talking about even being a second weekend team. Is it enough stylistically to win and make the tournament in today's college basketball if you're struggling like that and don't take a ton of threes? I know we've talked about it on the network. It it puts them in a bind. There's no doubt. And, you know, when you talk about game planning, you know, you saw it last night. Morehead State said, we're going to clog that lane. Now they had, it was part of their system, the post trap. They did a good job. They had a shot blocker. uh, So they were able to kind of boggle them up. And it, you know, it put them in a bind. And, and, you know, if they wouldn't have made a couple down the stretch, uh, you know, they probably would have lost that game. So uh, it, it's going to make it difficult on them. Uh, you know, hopefully it looks like Galloway's a little better rhythm now, so if he makes them. Uh, Mbako, it seems like he's playing with a little more confidence and can make some of those. Uh, you know, the big thing is who else can make them. And, you know, where will make a one, one every other game? I think that's off a of pick and pop. There's no doubt. But can they find somebody else? Can Cups finally, you know, make one? Um, you know, is there somebody else that, you know, that can really step up and make a couple shots that'll help? Coach, which Big Ten team has the most versatile array of styles they can play effectively? Oh, man. Um, maybe Illinois right now. Uh, they, they have such great length. Um, at all the positions, they're not like a big, big team, but they have—they're so big at the guard positions. And Shannon's—you know—he's an older guy, he's a veteran, and you know it, it, he's been—you know—five years. I, I played against a freshman; he's a little skinny guy at Texas Tech, and you could take advantage of that. But he's gotten bigger. Uh, Gary A's really helped them, um, you know. So they and and even. Damas is is has a good frame and a and good size, so and you got a point guy Ty Rogers six seven. So, uh, you know, the one question for me with them is like when they went to Tennessee, if they can really score, if they keep them out of transition, can they score enough in the half court offense? And that's we'll see as conference goes as they go on the road, um, can they do that? 
you know, that'll be the big question. Hey, are you enjoying the TV and, in in, you know, obviously in this case radio, but, you know, just the TV work, whether it be in the booth with Dave and the guys at Big Ten Network or, or being on the road and doing the cutter, color analyst, is is it hard not to revert automatically back to, like, looking at it and falling into coach mode? And have you enjoyed it so far, the transition? Yeah, I have enjoyed it. It keeps me busy, busy um, and stays keeps me involved in it. I, I really love the people at the Big Ten Network. And I was there at Illinois when it started. I got to know those guys a little bit. As Dave Revson was the one I really got to know because I was on with him several times and did some shows even when he was with ESPN. Uh, but they're just good people, and they care, and they love the league. I think if you uh, listen to other, last year, the ACC, I think it was Coach Capel and somebody else said, we got to promote our league better. Um, the Big Ten, listen to the network. They promote and, and push the league, and, and I think our league does a great job. Obviously, Andy, Andy Katz, uh, he always sees things as sunny and bright, and, and he really tries to help uh, – promote and so that's great to have him there because he's got a, na- a national platform and and Mike DeCourcy also so I-, I love being with those guys I really I didn't know if I'd like the games and it's a little more stressful because you got so m- you got to do a lot more prep and knowing the players and um, and I-, I do love going to practice shoot arounds watching coaches talking with them getting to know them and uh, you know, it, it, it's it's that part of it is fun for me, and it still keeps me excited. Um, you know, and I so I enjoy doing it. I I only have you know they give me seven eight games or so, but the, my main job is hopefully being in the studio, being the coach. Uh, I think they're going to add uh, Coach Beeline's going to add on on the weekends once we get into league play. So it'll be nice to have two veteran coaches that have been in the league for a long time and and hopefully help promote the league. My only thing is sometimes i got to be careful not, you know, this is what I would do. I I, I don't want to get into that because then people start questioning, you know, Coach Weber said we should have done this or whatever. <laughs> yep. um, you know, so it's, it's that part. It's that hard part. And I, I try to watch what I say. I try to, when it's obvious, hey, you got to play with energy. you got to play, you know, stats back it up. They had, Indiana had zero steals yesterday at halftime. Um, you know, they had one block shot. So, you know, they just – those stats, we call them play hard stats. You know, you can – you know, Hubie Brown used to uh, – years ago did deflections, and he said, I could always tell if my teams are ready to play how many deflections they have. Shaka Smart does that. You always see the boards. That and Tom Crean was all about the deflections. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And uh, – you know, it's just, are you ready? Are you ready to play? You know, I think, are you on your toes or on your heels? Uh, you know, and that's that's a big thing to watch. So those things are, are obvious, and I think I can bring those facts out. But uh, I hate to, like, question the coach because I'm not at practice every day. You know, people say, why don't they play the freshmen? Well, I can see it. They, they're never in position on defense. And, you know, they, they don't talk on defense. And everyone looks to the offensive part, but they're giving up layups off of a simple ball screen action. And, you know, you don't even see it because they're so out of position, you don't know they're getting exploited. But, you know, you got that's the thing you don't see as a fan or as somebody that's not at practice every day to recognize that. So that's where I 
hopefully I'm careful about it and don't over, you know, step my bounds with coaching as I'm announcing. You got the best of both worlds now, Coach, because you get to game plan, go to shoot around, go to practice like you're coaching. Then you get to watch the games from the sideline like you're coaching. And then win or lose, it doesn't affect your mood and you get to go out and have pizza. Like that's the best of both worlds, right? <laughs> totally and different than back in the coaching days. Pizza and a beer definitely are after pre-coaching <laughs> meals. So, I love uh, it. But I, you know what else is fun is I have a lot of coaches call me and just ask me, what do you think? And you know, it's it. You know, Tom Tom Izzo is a Hall of Fame Naismith Hall of Fame coach, and he calls. And I always have, I always kind of put in there a little asterisk. You know, coach, you you're a Hall of Famer. I don't know if I can tell you something, but this is what I see. And you know, when people, you know, even the Morehead State coach, he texts me this morning and asks me what I thought. Uh, you know, so that's always fun too. And I love helping and mentoring coaches and. Uh, you know, you can always keep learning. If you don't keep learning in the business, you're going to be in trouble. You know, last night, Indiana could have used a Bruce Weber wake-up call. That was the problem, right? And then once they got it, they are good to go, right? Um, Coach, we appreciate it, and it's always good stuff, man. Always enjoy having you on, and we appreciate it and certainly look forward to watching you. Hey, if you need energy, you can grab a clipboard and you can break that thing and get yourself fired up. You know, my manager screwed me up a few years ago. They gave me uh, this plastic one you couldn't break, and I almost broke my knee on this thing. It just, uh, <laughs> and it almost hit me in the face on the on the way up after it bounced off my leg. So, but uh, you know, so if you need a wake up call, somebody get some clipboards, get them in the morning, just slap yourself. It's it's a good way to get up. All right, well, we'll try it, Coach. I appreciate it as always. All right, happy holidays. All right, same to you. Merry Christmas. Bruce you Weber, too, of course, longtime college basketball coach and uh, on the sidelines, one of the great college basketball games of all time, that great Illinois-Arizona game. Really good stuff and really good perspective about Purdue and Indiana. And, you know, he even mentioned there are – here's a trivia question for you guys. I had to look this up. I had to look this up. Every year, you fans of the 1976 Indiana Hoosiers, every year you start looking like as we start getting into conference play – Who's out there that could be the one that takes it away? Last undefeated. There are like four undefeateds left. And one of them would be the ultimate killer if they were the one to do it. But we'll tell you who they are. We'll check in on it and we'll do it next. Now I'm going to give. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love. Hanging with friends who lift you up and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. You guys, a little quiz. Are you ready? Let's do it. The 1976 Indiana Hoosiers at 32 and 0 were the last team to go undefeated in college basketball. Now, hear me out before wagering your guesses or jumping in and saying names of schools. There are currently three schools in college basketball that are undefeated. Three. There are three remaining. Okay. One of them is the former school of an Indiana coach. Another 
is the current school of a former Indiana coach. And the third is the former school of a former Indiana coach who, when he came to Indiana, was replacing a coach who had defeated this school in the Final Four. Would you like to guess any of the three schools that are remaining undefeated in college basketball? Cougars. The Houston Cougars. I cheated, so I can't play. Is correct. Okay, so the schools that you cheated to look up, Jimmy, fall into which category that I just named? I can name the other. I think I think one. I think that is the last one you said. Do you want me to the, also the two name schools school? that are remaining that are undefeated. One of them is I, I haven't looked. So. One of them, an Indiana coach came from there, and the other one was a former Indiana coach came from this school and was replacing a coach who defeated this school with him at the helm in the Final Four. Eddie, you go. Uh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma was coached by Kelvin Sampson, defeated by Mike Davis in the Final Four. Mike Davis left, and Kelvin Sampson left Oklahoma to come coach in Indiana. Kelvin Sampson, who is now, of course, coaching at Houston. So the third... I'm drawing a blank on the third. Okay. Jimmy? The third is a school that is oh. coached, that was coached at one point and is now coached by an Indiana coach. James Madison. James Madison is correct. There are your three undefeateds. There's one more. Oh, there is one more? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, what league? What what? They conference? are in the SEC. I don't know how I overlooked this one. Um, does it have an Indiana tie? I don't think so, but I'm not the historian. Well, I haven't. Oh, Ole Miss? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ole Miss, actually, This here's your Indiana tie with Ole Miss off the top of my head. Ole Miss in Kansas City in the year 2000 won their first NCAA tournament game by eliminating Troy Murphy and the Notre Dame Ooh. Fighting Irish. There's your Ole Miss connection. There you go. How about Porter Moser, though, from Loyola going to Oklahoma and having the Sooners? And I don't know Oklahoma's schedule. But clearly, so here's the thing. Because I do think there are Indiana fans that look every year to see who's going to be the last undefeated. And they got North Houston, Carolina on the road. Tonight. Houston would be an absolute buzzkill because it's Kelvin Sampson. And we know how Indiana fans feel about Kelvin Sampson. But Houston and Oklahoma, one of the two of those is going to cannibalize the other because they're both in the Big 12. Correct. So one would think you're safe there. JMU, one would think that if they go undefeated through the, what are they in? Are they in, in basketball-wise? Are they in the Ohio Valley or Sunbelt? Sunbelt, I think. But either way, if they get into the tournament, one would assume that once they go up against you know, a Purdue or an Arizona or, you know, a Duke, that they'd be in trouble. And then Ole Miss, I mean, come on, Ole Ole Miss in anything in sports, is there any college program athletically, nothing against them? I've been to the Grove, like I've I've done the tailgate at Ole Miss. Is there any program, though, like college athletic program that gets you more excited every year and one of the two sports gets out to a good start and then they get into league play and water finds its level real quick? Well, JMU beat uh, Michigan State to start the season. I didn't know that. I mean, I think JMU is good. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I've always wondered this. If you had to factor in, let's say that you were a fan of a university. Okay, this is a two-part question. Okay. Of all Division One programs, if you factor in, and let's say that you are a diehard season ticket holder for football and basketball, 
So none of this reverse jacket, IU basketball, Notre Dame football, none of that, right? Yeah. You are a fan of both, Hate that stuff. both, both teams. Yep. Based on that, which university would be would would give you the most over the course of your lifetime? You've seen the most mediocre in both. You're not terrible. You're not terrible. You're you're you know every four or five years you go to like a December eighteenth rainy and Mobile Alabama bowl game, but you never win more than like seven games. And every four or five years you get into the NCAA tournament and you win a game, but never more than that. I mean. Today in both the, the last the last ten years, USC. Uh, I get it. I know they're prestigious. Uh, uh, okay, I understand. But, but if, I, if I'm saying yeah, today's I mean, fan, I get but, it. But I'm I'm saying in your entire lifetime, from your your grandfather, your okay. uncle, all the way through, it's just been you're like you know what? I am the definition of mediocrity. I mean, my, my uh, Missouri. If you're a Missouri fan, like you're decent every year in both sports. Do you ever actually break through and have like serious? Yeah. Missouri's had a few basketball teams that have been okay, right? Um, Rutgers. I mean, that's a fine line in terms of Oklahoma. worse than mediocre, you could argue. Uh, Oklahoma, I think of as better. The Oklahoma has been to the college football playoff like three times in the last ten years. I'm talking about like a team that that like has never won more than seven games, but never lost fewer, n- never won fewer than like b- between. Four and nine wins or eight wins every year. Minnesota. Okay. Minnesota's a good one, right? I mean, yeah. like if you're a Minnesota fan, you've been to the tournament a few times. You went to one Final Four and it blew up your entire athletic program. But, you know, I mean, Minnesota, if they go to like the Little Caesars Bowl, it's like, hey, that's awesome. You know, every five years we're getting to get, hey, get all the boys together. Let's go. We're road tripping. Let's go to Detroit and go see the Gophers play, right? And then in basketball. What was that? You've never a, talked to people from Minnesota bad, or Wisconsin? Was, was, I have, but they don't say soda. anything like that. That had soda flavor. Minnesotans? Have you not been to northern Minnesota? Nope. Have you never been to Fargo, which is North Dakota, right across the river? I've never been north, really. I've been to Michigan, and that's about Wisconsin it. is where, oh, yeah. Oh, I'll tell you, not the pack there. there you you know, call up Totter. Yep. When I was in college, Eddie, my roommate was from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. The UP. And during graduation, somebody brought down of his family came down and they brought a videotape of everybody from his town congratulating him. And on the videotape, they're all like, "Hey, daughter!" And I'm like, "What? What? What are they calling you?" And I'll never forget his his cousin came to stay with us, and he, he goes and gets in the shower and he leans his head out and he's like, "Hey, can you bring me a tool?" I'm like, "A tool? Like, is the shower leaking? No, I need a tool. What do you need? A hammer? A screwdriver? No, I got a tool off. Oh, you need a towel? Okay." Now, likewise, what university would give you the best if you were a fan of both sports? If you're a fan of both sports, what what university gives you the most riches, both sports combined? Historically. I mean, you're, you're a 60-year-old guy, historically. At USC would be close, but yeah. basketball-wise, they've you know, they're they're pretty nondescript until late. And UCLA. UCLA might be the winner. Yeah. UCLA or Michigan. Michigan would probably it's one of those two, is it not? Yeah. Probably because of the Fab Five, yeah. Ohio State for a well, time. Michigan's but basketball's beyond the Fab Five. Well, that, yeah. Yeah. Basketball's I mean, teetered off, but what's that? Ohio State. Ohio State's a really good one. Ohio State's really good. I mean, because they're good in basketball. They're obviously elite in bat it's probably one of those three. 
UCLA, Michigan, or Ohio State. I mean, Michigan is down this year, but st- you know, Michigan's basketball history goes well back and all the way. You know, Bill Frieder had some unbelievable teams, and of course, Steve Fisher wins it all with Glenn Rice and that group. Then, then they get the Fab Five. Then after beyond that, I mean, they've been to. John Beeline had them in the Final Four seemingly every year. It was unbelievable. Well, he I brought write up, them off. I brought up the Fab Five because you said if you're like 60 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. But the fat, you know what's funny is the Fab Five, understandably, the Fab Five is the one that brings you the most notoriety, right? The reality is that the Fab Five amongst the groups that have come through Michigan is the one that won the least. I mean, they went to Final Fours. They never won one. They, went, they, they lost the Big Ten title to Indiana um, twice. Uh, Tennessee could be there. Tennessee's a good one, especially right now. You don't think of it as a as a basketball school at all, right? But right. like they're pretty good in basketball, and obviously, you know, Tennessee football is interesting to me because I still think of Tennessee football as like an elite blue blood. Yeah, and you know they they've really fallen off, but I still think I mean they've climbed back a little bit the last couple of years, but not to where they were. But man, I'll tell you what, it, it, like Kevin Bowen went this year as we talked about when they played Alabama. There is nothing like. I mean that that stadium at night. Oh yeah, is unbelievable. I mean, there's just the, the SEC in general, and I know that there's a bias against you know people are like they get tired of hearing about how great the SEC is, but the reality is that the SEC, who's a mid pack SEC football program, Arkansas, good one, Arkansas or South Carolina, right? You go into play at Arkansas or at South Carolina, and it is automatically one of the three most – like if Arkansas or South Carolina was in the Big Ten, their environment that you go into to play is is one of immediately the three most hostile in the Big Ten. The SECs, they're always playing night games. Everybody's drunk. They've, they've been on moonshine since like 2 in the afternoon. They're turning over couches and burning cars. It's just it's a it's a totally different animal, man. Like the the tailgating aspect of the SEC, and I'm not one of these. It's like, and I know people around here don't want to hear it because you get tired of hearing the SEC bias. But there is absolutely something about the SEC. It's why Alabama, as soon as Alabama showed any pulse whatsoever, they were going to pull them into the college football playoff because they're like, look, they went to the gauntlet of the SEC, and they're a, they're, they're a huge money maker. And Alabama's going to beat Michigan. You know that, right? Yeah. I don't think Alabama should have gotten in, personally, based on resume and totality of resume. But do I? it, it comes down to which was the college football committee's job. Was it to pick the four highest quality teams, the four best teams right now, or was it to pick the teams that put together the best resume over the course of the season? Well, they got backed into a corner. They got back into a corner with the Texas paradox yeah. because you can't leave Texas Correct. off and Correct. include Alabama because they beat them. Right. Like, and that's that unfortunately, among other things, wound up screwing Florida State. And it's a whole other reason why, if you're a college football fan, you should be amped up for the expansion of 12 next year. I think, okay. Before I open that door, I want to tell you, uh, I know we'll get into this next week, but dream scenario is. Bama, Washington, and then Michael Penix rides off into the sunset beating Bama. I would love nothing more than that. Unlikely that it happens, but what about, nothing more than that. But what about Michigan? Why Bama over Michigan? I mean, I'd take either or, but Bama, it feels like, you know, they have the hardware to back it up. They do. Give, give me Bama. Huh? 
<laughs> we want Bama. Bama. <laughs> well, I'm saying, why would you want him to beat Alabama more than you would want him to beat Michigan? Be- but for what I just said, yeah, the, the hardware matters. I mean, they're because of the prestige correct. of the program. Yes, okay. they're the they're the they're um, they are the program of college football the last fifteen well, seventeen years. Indisputably, yeah, yeah, indisputably. Now the. Alabama, I know that we're bringing up an old wound here, but you know, there's no doubt that Alabama probably is one of the four best teams, but at the same time, as impressive as their win was over Georgia, a week before that, they needed a, a miracle to beat a very <laughs> average Auburn team. And in yeah. addition to that, if Alabama is in fact, you know, everybody's like, well, they had to put Alabama in because everybody knows they're one of the best teams in the country. If they're one of the best teams in the country, then why did losing a close game to them penalize Georgia four spots when Georgia's been yeah. the creme de la creme for 30 games? You know what I mean? Now, back to the point about 12 teams, I don't disagree with you, Jimmy, that, that 12 is better than four for sure, but I will be honest, and this is beggar chooser, greedy, greedy, greedy on my behalf, but... I think 12 is too many. I think eight was the way to go. Because there is a, within eight, whoever is eight, you still have like a legitimate, you know, like, okay, that that team can absolutely, like, like Oregon would be, what's Oregon right now? Probably eight, right? Yeah. So your 12th team this year is Oklahoma. Before that, it's Ole Miss, Penn State, Missouri. Yeah, Oregon. I mean, Ole Miss. I mean, is Ole Miss really putting the fear in anybody if they're going up against Washington or Texas or Michigan? Does anybody really think they're going to win? I mean, Oklahoma. Oklahoma was okay, but uh, you know, they had the losses. They they lost. And and how about Penn State? Is there any better bigger paper tiger than Penn State every single year? <laughs> let me let me tell you, Penn State season every single year. Literally, I'm going to do a I'm going to do a favor to every sportscaster in 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 whatever Lehigh. Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, State College. We Here did this go. exercise you ready? played OSU. Here yeah. we go. Yep. The Penn State Nittany Lions went into Columbus, ranked, of course, number four in the country against the number two Buckeyes, and James Franklin's 7-0 Nittany Lions had the fans on the edge of their seat when they were leading in the horseshoe 10-3. At the half, Ohio State made adjustments, came back, Marvin Harrison Jr. got hot, and Ohio State defeated Penn State yesterday. 38 to 6. You think they're going to start doing this? 38 to 10. Dude, you know what to do. Oh, boy. You think they'll start breaking out? I thought that died. Every year, Penn State starts out 6 or 7 and 0 every year. They play Ohio State. They look good for a while. They lead like going into the third quarter. They're ups, and you get excited. You start getting excited, right? Then they get beat. Correct. And then two weeks later, they go to Minnesota and get beat again. And they end up with two or three losses. Every single year, Ryan Day is dealing with the same complex playing Michigan. No, you're right. Right, that that narrative. Ryan about Day Penn is State. worried about becoming John Cooper Part Two. Right. Correct. Yeah. No question about it. Um, <laughs> we don't he's have an H- we don't have an HR or security department, do we? No, he's lurking. Yeah, I can tell. I'm going to barricade the door. Look at Derek Schultz. He's he's in for JMB. He's just he's just awkwardly loitering. He found a lull. This this clearly this feels like. I mean, here's the thing. Derek managed to find the only person more awkward than him in the whole building, Elijah. <laughs> this is like Lenny and Squiggy running around it's trying true. to pick up chicks. I won't even deny it. It's true. <laughs> All right. Derek mercifully is going to talk to us, I guess, next. 
The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a athlete. This is my way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day in College Hoops will take Baylor on the money line at plus 136 on the, excuse me, not on the road. It's a neutral site game in New York at MSG against the Duke Blue Devils. In the NBA, we will take the Boston Celtics to bounce back tonight. They're in Sacramento against the Kings. Pacers, Hornets, Tyrese Halliburton over 41 and a half points plus assists. Pacers dominate tonight. They put up 130. I'm going over 128 and a half for the Sirs tonight. Eddie, do you have anything? Yeah, I've got three different bets I'm going to give you all points related. I'll take Laurie Markkinen over 21.5 for the Utah Jazz, uh, under 22.5 for Paolo Bencaro. Magic are taking on the, and I'll take Kobe White for the Bulls over 22.5. Derek, did you get all that? Tyrese Halliburton points and assists 41. I'm trying to think about that one. You know, he's been. Struggle bussing here a little if he, bit. If he here. threw in turnovers, that number increases a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, three turnovers. Isn't it weird that Halliburton's at a point where three turnovers is like <gasps> shocking? Yeah. Whoa, like three but turnovers? He's had, he's had a few of them. Well, recently. he had a seven turnover game. Yeah, that, that was bad too. But um Four you know, night, and yeah. you don't want to look, you don't want to lay it all on him. They're giving up a buck fifty a night lately, but um he has he's struggled for sure. This stretch of six games before the calendar turns is Eddie was highlighting yesterday. It's critical. Do you remember the stat? Eddie for 16 of, the year. of 23 to start the year are against playoff teams. Wow. So you have to take care of Charlotte at home. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Not, not lose to them twice at home in the same season. It's not a big ask, right? I no, in the same month. Washington right? shouldn't be a big ask, guys. And Washington is like that a, was brutal too. A juggernaut. They've team. won four games this year. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know it, brutal. I mean, at least they survived Detroit, who's lost 572 games in a row or whatever. Derek, I'd like to know, did you get sleep last night? Are you nervous? Like, what are you, what are you doing? I am night? so excited to be here, Jake. Thanks so much for saying that. Um, excited yeah, to be on yeah. the airwaves. Excited to be with my best bros. Not only you, but also Jimmy and I, Yankees buds. Eddie and I were texting back and forth earlier today. It's mostly about the hotline number, but still, I consider him a friend. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm psyched. I'm, I'm ready to go. These things... The, the, the fill-in with JMV, like Todd Meyer always is texting me sometimes within 24 hours, hey, can you do this? So it's always like kind of spur it's, you of know the what? moment. It's because nobody else, they couldn't find anybody. And else, I don't so. have time. Well, he always tells me I'm the first like one the that Isaiah McKenzie of the roster. I mean, right? you can ask John when he comes back, but I think John John chooses me as the first reserve. I'm the first one off the bench okay. for his show. Uh-huh. And I'm happy to fill in whenever you're out. You're too. like James Johnson. So just let me know. I, I know that you guys have had James Boyd and people like that in here who are great, but um, I'm also willing and available. You know how many days I take off, right? Well, you have your trip with um, Byron. Correct. As long as he brings his wallet and <laughs> you guys can go all a, a traverse across the country. And right? the keys to the car. And then you're right. basically out every Friday during IndyCar season. No, not anymore. Which is kind of a paid vacation. That doesn't happen anymore? No. Okay. You, these got, guys haven't seen your IndyCar we, W2, right? We, <laughs> we got to work on that for, for 24, well, right? One time when, when Jake and I were doing the show together, he printed out his IndyCar W2, and it was like December. It was like this time, like six, seven years ago. So it was the full year of the W2. Like it was the year-end tax form, and it took me a while to really kind of make peace with <laughs> what they were. I think Mr. Penske turned the faucet off for the most part, but it, it took me a while to uh, make peace with what Tony George and everybody else were paying out in those days. They know talent when they see it. I, I just like I could not believe it. I'm like the guy is a turn it. reporter for God's sake. Uh, Come on. Okay, so you got a big a show lined up, right? Yeah, Julian Blackman's going to join us 3:30. Okay. Um, excited about that. Had the 
I don't know if you call it a game ceiling pick. There was still four or five minutes left, but certainly the, the kind of the interception that salted that game away against Pittsburgh. Um, four o'clock, we'll have KB on. We'll talk about his uh, trip to see Notre Dame lose by 20 points Ugh. to the Citadel. And some you were other quick Colts to tweet things. that out last night. I know. I felt bad doing it. And then I felt bad for Kevin and Greg's you mentions. Subject, you had a good subject tweet and we're up against it. But when you said, what's the worst? That was a great thread that, that yeah. people have. Did um, you see Caleb's response? No. Caleb said Colts Rams. And I'm like, Caleb, you live in Fishers. It's the worst <laughs> loss that you traveled to. And he goes, traffic was really bad that day. I'm like, come on, man. Like, that's not the spirit yeah. of the question. Not like when I went to, drove all the way to see North Carolina State Clemson and walked in oh, and it was like 27-3 yeah. in the first quarter. I remember and I drove that 660 one. miles. Mark Monteith as well going to join us. And then John Chuckery, our old friend from Atlanta, 92-9 the game, going to join us. We'll talk about right, Have fun Colts. with it. My all time right. with you is up. Well, you have to come on my